0: When a crisis hits, that's when suddenly a belief in God makes a difference. Because those who believe are the ones who will turn and help someone else. And those who don't believe, their true colors come out. Well, they say they can be ethical, they say they can be nice, but when the crisis hits, it's the non-believers who will step all over anyone who's in their path to reach their selfish aim, to reach their own ambitious desire. So the way we believe in God affects the way we see ourselves and it affects the way we treat other people. So can we just say, oh, that's fine. You believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. No. Believing in God matters because it changes the way we view and treat each other.
1: Christians versus Pharisees. Choosing sides and how to fight for them in the Mormon Civil War. Bradgate. What the church must learn from the fall and attempted rehabilitation of Brad Wilcox. Episode 10b. Who is Brad Wilcox? And what did he teach the teenagers of the British Isles? Welcome back, intrepid listeners. As you will know by now, this podcast is all about closely analysing the details so that we can eventually see and understand the big picture of what on earth is going on in the doctrine, practices, abuses of power and mind-expanding possibilities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is about holding the general authorities who have absolute power, incredible wealth, and no accountability, in our denomination, responsible for what they say and do in their public teaching and commanding, and the harm it has caused to a rapidly dwindling and dying church that, in my younger years, was on the cusp of exponential growth and becoming a major world religion. What on earth went so wrong? Why do 80% of our own children raised in the church leave it? Why are there only 3 to 4 million of its 16 million members still participating? Can it be reformed and saved? In this mini-series, we are using the career and explosive racist, sexist and anti-intellectual teaching of Brad Wilcox, Brigham Young University and Young Men General Presidency member who has repeatedly hit the headlines recently as a launch pad to explore this civil war going on in our church. It is a civil war between Christian Mormons desperate to survive and thrive in the 21st century information age and embrace its opportunities for learning and making our communities compassionate and inclusive and the Pharisee Mormons, who are all about control, tradition, adding new rules and regulations and expectations, and doubling down on the worst bigotries of our church's wild past. In this episode 10b and episode 10c, we will find out more about who Brad Wilcox is, and particularly his convoluted career path. We've just been finding out, in yet another unexpected development, thanks to a Fox TV investigation this month of May 2022, that it has included Brad being hired by allegedly secular Utah schools for many years to give boys on the cusp of puberty what they call, bizarrely to British ears, the maturation talk. I presume this is a Utah thing, because it is a capital offence there to say the word sex in public. And sex education involves two concepts Utah Mormon culture is increasingly horrified by as a clear and present danger to faith and civilization, real sex and real education. Before getting into what Brad said to a young audience in Alpine, Utah that kicked off Bradgate in episode 10D, and the fascinating aftermath, in these next two episodes we will explore what he said to the young people of my country in a very revealing and at times very endearing COVID lockdown online fireside to the youth of the Sunderland England Stake that also had a worldwide audience tuning in. And as always, along the way, I will weave in lots of interesting tangents and context and connections to the wider issues in our religion and what its leaders are saying and doing. Brad Wilcox, like me, was born in Provo, Utah, and trained and worked as an elementary school teacher for which he is perfectly suited. He's probably been having some dark nights of the soul recently and wishing he had stayed there, bless him. He then became a professor at BYU's teacher training education department, and rumour has it was probably about to be fired from it as he wasn't very good in that role. So he pulled some strings and got a job as a professor in the ancient scripture department for which he has no educational or professional qualifications whatsoever. But, BYU's religion and ancient scripture zone has for a long time been its safe place for often unqualified religious fundamentalists who come from academia or get promoted through the ranks of the church education system, and their main qualifications need to be unquestioning loyalty to the church, conservative orthodoxy regarding doctrine and social issues, and a willingness to rat on your colleagues in other departments if they are too liberal, which plays out controversially every year. Recently the recruitment rules were changed in the wake of Geoffrey Holland's evisceration of the Maxwell Institute a couple of years ago and the whole faculty in the musket speech I have discussed in the podcast to prioritise propaganda and homophobia over academic credibility and meeting recognised professional standards for accreditation. If I understand all the articles I've been reading about it correctly, it is now no longer a requirement for being a professor of religion or ancient scripture at BYU to actually have academic qualifications or published research in academia regarding religion or ancient scripture. It is enough to have published some things in Mormon media without peer review, so, the unqualified and uneducated lunatics are rapidly taking over the asylum at BYU, and Brad Wilcox is their cheerleader. Brad is a person who only started appearing on my radar about a year ago during the long Covid lockdown. As the life of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints transitions to existing mostly online, the Orthodox Latter day Saint Nuanced Mormon and post-Mormon blogger communities and podcasters continued their relentless growth and spread out from their strongholds in Facebook and Reddit into the newer and snappier platforms like the new kid on the block TikTok that has been sweeping the earth since its fast and furious one-minute format was stretched to three minutes in July 2021. This has allowed for some thoughtful analysis to be included in its mini-masterpieces and highly addictive fun that my wife and I keep having to stage interventions to rescue each other from as the hours rush by when we get engrossed in it. My TikTok Crack Cocaine includes nostalgic clips of amazing trance and techno music concerts and raves I really should have gone to in the 1990s instead of futile busy work ward council meetings, obscure European and Mongolian folk and throat singers, literally raving Hasidic Jews, the glorious Deco band making 80s style mashups of recent chart toppers, just search for greedy peasant for camp medievalist frolics, and who doesn't love a dancing cat? Every so often, I started bumping into people exasperated with a jolly BYU professor with childish enthusiasm and a toothy grin, gaslighting McConkie Mormon clichés with the certainty and bounce of a teenage puppy and golden plate props, and those who love him to bits. He is a very polarising character. Here in the UK, we'd say he is Marmite. This is Marmite. Marmite is a yeast extract spread that you put on your toast with lots of butter if you're sensible. Um, And you either love it or you hate it. And I'm... mm, It's very salty. It's got really intense, strong flavour. I sort of love it. But just as there are many ways to Mormon, there are many ways to Marmite. And I have defected to the Antipodes and adopted Vegemite. Vegemite, less salty, milder flavour, more flavourful, I think. Doesn't burn your head off. Anyway, Marmite, you love it or you hate it or you nuance it. Brad Wilcox is Marmite for a lot of people. They love him or they hate him
0: students, this is a replica of the seer stone or one of the seer stones that Joseph Smith had. This was the stone that he found in a well when digging a well when he was a young man. And then when he would look into the stone, he would be able to see things that other people could not see. And part of the translation of the Book of Mormon was done with the Urim and Thummim, but part of the translation was also done with a seer stone or uh, several seer stones. Now, people often get confused because they hear that Joseph Smith put a seer stone inside of a hat and then would look into the hat to see the seer stone. And they think it sounds weird. But when I compare for my students the seer stone to a cell phone and I say, hey, a smooth surface on which words appear uh, that can be read, then it makes more sense to them. I also say... Hey, when you're out on a sunny day and you're trying to look at your cell phone, you wish it were darker. We often go like this to try to see the words better. Well, no wonder Joseph Smith put his cell phone or his seer stone in the hat so that he could block out light and he could see what was being written, what was given to him on the seer stone a little clearer. So maybe with these visuals in mind, then it will help you understand a little better, just like I hope it helps my students understand a little bit better about the translation process of the Book of Mormon.
1: During COVID lockdown, we started to experience a lot of quite senior general authorities and celebrity scholars, unable to travel as usual, who were suddenly available and willing to contribute to local online stake devotionals and firesides. We were graced with several here in the UK, and particularly in the Birmingham Stake area, as it seemed they were waking up to the fact that the church is about to disappear in our dear country. Brad Wilcox was the star turn of the online Sunderland Stake Youth Fireside on the 13th of September 2020, and this was the first time I'd really paid attention to him in full flow. This guy really works hard when he is bringing his A-game. It was a long broadcast, he cheerfully interacted with the young people, despite their impenetrable Sunderland accents, and he had a lot to say. Unfortunately, some of it was blatant deception, and I discovered for myself why Brad is so marmitey. I will get to proving the deception after hearing and reflecting on the main points Brad Wilcox addressed in his fireside to the young people and what turned out to also include a large adult audience of Latter-day Saints around the world from the comments posted on the screen. As a teaser, maybe see if you can guess what the whopping lie was as you listen. Watching this made me feel deeply proud of the local leaders and teenagers of the Sunderland Stake. They were thoughtful articulate and represent the amazing job the church can do raising and encouraging young people to stretch and challenge themselves in positive ways. As we will hear at the start the Sunderland stake leadership had lined up a guest list that is a progressive Mormon's dream come true including Tom Christopherson and Terrell and Fiona Givens and to his credit Brad Wilcox expressed his respect for them too although his comments about Tom Christofferson were couched in the usual deeply homophobic assumptions and framing I have discussed in other episodes and is ably addressed by podcasts like Latter Gay Stories and the always fun Latter Day Lesbian. There has been a scramble to remove film of Brad's firesides from the internet since Bradgate But the footage of this Sunderland fireside is still publicly available at the time of filming and the Sunderland stake president offered it to everyone to be inspired by and so the youth could revisit it and think about all the things discussed later and not have information overload. This should be obvious and make sense. It is how a religion confident in its beliefs and the preaching of its leaders should be. I hope this podcast doesn't lead to it being removed, because someone dared to point out that it wasn't all perfect. This is a stark contrast to the total paranoia of the senior church media managers who erase from the internet broadcasts by President Nelson and the Apostles, as happened in last Halloween's British Rescue by three apostles and a church historian in 2021, the nanosecond the Apostles stopped talking, and within 24 hours of Russell and Wendy Nelson addressing all of Europe recently. It would seem that the church's PR people, who really run the church now, or try to, are so rightly ashamed of the utter nonsense these general authorities preach now, they cannot move fast enough to remove all trace of it, and hope the members forget their talks ever happens and what they actually taught as a matter of standard damage control practice now. So much for every word coming out of the apostles' mouths from pulpits being like scripture to us to understand fully and revisit and ponderise. To protect their privacy, I've edited out references to the names of the young people and edited their questions out, and put a Sunderland football club crest over the face of the stake president's brilliant young sidekick who did a fantastic job. But I would point out that the stake has had the whole thing on public social media for a year and a half, with an open invitation to watch it. And I have kept the closing prayer at the end by a boy who seemed to be about 11 years old, who like all our young people just opened my heart wide with his simple and thoughtful words that showed he had been listening carefully to what Brad taught and just wanted to do the right things. That was exactly me at this age and that was many of you intrepid listeners either at his age or when you converted to this religion with a simple childlike humility and trust. We owe these young people the absolute best we can give. We have a duty of care and compassion to always be honest with them, to never set them up for betrayal and disillusionment with their religion and their whole world view when they discover later that we manipulated them and told them half-truths and lies about really important things. But Brad Wilcox did neither of those things. He said some good stuff, but he also lied to them. And he set them up for faith and trust crisis later. And this is what my entire podcast really boils down to by holding these church leaders accountable for what they actually teach us and our children. There cannot be any zone of tolerance for lies and unrighteous dominion and abuse of trust. Not just for the purely practical reason that it does not work in the long run, multitudes are fleeing the church now because of all the lies and really weak rationalisations they were taught to trust and depend on by local and global leaders and celebrity youth speakers like Brad Wilcox since they were children and teenagers but also because it is morally, ethically and spiritually wrong to lie and manipulate young people in this way for any reason. The scriptures, the Ten Commandments and the Temple Recommend interview questions are very clear. Liars do not go to heaven. Satan is the father of lies. Simple. So why do we have an embedded culture in our church that tolerates this and lets the leaders get away with lying and incompetence until journalists or LDS dissidents do all the hard work of holding them accountable and fact-checking them. And then the church tells them to repent and apologise or fires them or pretends nothing happened. Because these same men are also... Really, really nice. They smile. They have social skills. They do sometimes teach really true or interesting or rational sounding and inspiring things to make sense of our existence and give a purpose to our life. They can be very kind, just like vegetarian Hitler was kind to his dog and children. Until he had his dog shot in the Berlin bunker, and exterminated millions of children anyone trying to talk at church or to typical true believing members or tbms for short about the things these leaders lied about or got wrong or that are harming people immediately face a fortress of walls that go up from people convinced by the good and nice things these leaders said and did that they cannot possibly have done anything dishonest or harmful too. They have been carefully trained to remove most of the shades of grey or realism in their thinking and replace them with binary magical realism. General authorities are perfect, or the worst they can do as human beings is trivial and doesn't really matter, so why go looking for it? They nearly always refuse to engage if you try to show them what the problems and lies are and almost never have the basic confidence or curiosity to ask what your evidence is so they can fact-check it themselves. This I find very revealing. If they really were as confident as they pretend to be that the leaders are as good as claimed, there would be nothing to fear from looking at the evidence or having the conversations. But they know in their heart of hearts how many layers of dishonesty and full-on cult thought control and thought stopping we have normalised in our religiosity. Although they would be very reluctant to give it those names. And how we teach and talk about and sell our religion to each other and non-members and they have put so many things on their heaving shelves of unanswered questions and concerns, something in their brain is telling them that stepping further towards truth and transparency could bring it all crashing down, so they recoil in fear. And these days they nearly all have friends and family members who definitely left the church because of what they discovered researching it, rather than because they really couldn't go another minute without a cup of Earl Grey or an R-rated movie. The only hope for the church to survive is that they start seeing the harm, and insisting in their own minds and to these leaders that there isn't enough nice going on to override that nasty We are always taught at church analogies about how one rotten apple can ruin a whole box of apples or one small compromise with sin can eventually escalate and ruin our lives. So we need to be vigilant and see them for the threat that they are when they are still small and manageable and take responsibility for thinking through their potential consequences in the long run. But our culture and policies strictly forbid applying that same caution when we see church leaders starting to slip up into lies and corruption and want to nip it in the bud and stop it escalating because we can see the consequences that will inevitably come. If it's a general authority rather than one of the peasants lying and getting something wrong, we are forbidden to do, say or even think anything about it. There are a handful of really fundamental hypocrisies that have been normalised in LDS culture. One of the biggest is telling investigators to be highly sceptical about their religious leaders and traditions and scriptures in their other churches and religions and question everything about it. But as soon as they get baptised in our church to demonize and forbid doing any of that kind of analytical thinking about anything Mormon as satanic deception and to doubt their doubts and just trust everything they are told unconditionally. Another institutional hypocrisy is that the general authorities get to lecture us mere peasants all day long to be intensively hypervigilant about every tiny potential infraction of honesty or any other commandment, and constantly anxious about thinking and doing everything perfectly, and avoiding even the appearance of sin. Yet whenever an obvious sin or hypocrisy or lie of the general authorities is mentioned, we are told to cut them all kinds of slack, and give brother Joseph a break, and even when presented with irrefutable evidence of extreme and significant wrongdoing, like hoarding and lying about billions of dollars of sacred funds taken from the poor, and not using it as promised to them, the default mode response that they have been repeatedly taught to reach for, and do reach for 99% of the time, is well, it's not my place to judge them. If they are really not acceptable to God or should be removed from their calling, God will kill them now or punish them later. And it's none of my business. And I am very worried that if we do talk about this, someone's testimony of the church will be harmed and that will have eternal consequences. And so it is that we never deal with the problems. We shut down the conversations about them before they can begin. Leaders literally get away with lies, theft and at times murder and causing suicides. And the members whose testimonies we thought we were protecting are shattered anyway by the things we never addressed robustly and fixed. It's a lose-lose strategy. So, as we go through what Brad said in Sunderland, and in Utah, and so on, we are going to take time to hear him out. I will acknowledge and celebrate any good he says, and anything good in his ministering style. It is very easy to cherry-pick the worst bits, and the worst bits are more than enough to justify firing the guy forthwith, so don't get me wrong about that. But that approach alone is not going to persuade the TBMs to get on board with saving their own religion. They won't hear it and their walls will go up. I know from my own experience being specifically excommunicated for not using soft language and seeming only to be negative about these leaders, how solid and impenetrable those walls can be. I invite anyone who still needs convincing to look at the evidence I will present that these nice, apparently devout and sincere men are also doing so much that is so extremely harmful they are completely unsuitable for the callings and influence and power they have. I invite you to discover that their sincere or fake good stuff is not sincere or good enough to ignore the deceptive and self-sabotaging poison they are also putting into the minds of the adults and children they preach to. It is too deadly to leave it alone and hope for the best. I've been taught all my life Usually, with reference to Lucifer's dialogue with Adam and Eve about the risks of eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge, that the most powerful and effective lies are the lies intermingled with truth by the liar. So, we have been taught all along in this religion how important it should be to be healthily skeptical and to deploy the essential skills of critical analysis so that we learn not to be distracted and bamboozled and anaesthetized by the truths camouflaging untruths and thus let the poison flourish and fester and spread into every aspect of what we believe and do unchecked i'm not expecting or demanding perfection from our leaders but i expect and demand basic honesty and accountability The whole common consent system clearly and repeatedly taught in the Doctrine and Covenants Constitution for our Church demands basic honesty and commands that systems of accountability are followed without exception regarding leaders' callings. It goes into detail about who is accountable to who. And how even the prophet president of the high priesthood can be tried and judged by a bishop who is a high priest and a council of 12 high priests if needed in Doctrine and Covenants 107 verses 65 to 84. I don't think that is too much to ask, of people claiming to be special apostles and witnesses and examples to the whole world of Jesus H for Honest, Christ. Tonight is
2: part of a series of virtual firesides which we broadcast live. We will also have these scheduled throughout the month of September. On the 20th of September I'm personally delighted to have Terrell and Fiona Givens joining us. They are the the authors of outstanding books, including The Crucible of Doubt and The God Who Weeps. Fireside on the 27th of September will be with Tom Christophson, author of That We May Be One, A Gay Moments Perspective on Faith and Family. The first Sunday in October, we'll be delighted to be joined by President Nelson and the entire Quorum of the Twelve who will be addressing us. On the 10th and the 11th of October, we have the Sunderland Stake Conference, More details to follow on this through your local leaders.
0: It came out on September 11th, 2020, and it's from the First Presidency. And it says, engage in church meetings and activities. It's saying, hey, we've got to follow local guidelines, but it doesn't mean the church is closed. We're still getting together. We still have work to do. We've still got lives to touch and talking especially about the importance of the youth gathering. If those gatherings are virtual like we're doing now great if we can start gathering in small groups as well for presidency meetings and such great and I'm just so proud of your stake because you didn't wait until we had a first presidency letter telling us to do the very thing you're doing you're already on top of it your upcoming speakers are wonderful. You'll make sure to tune in when you hear Tarot and Fiona Gibbons. Uh, she's from England, so you better get you better get excited about having her come and address you. And uh, they are wonderful teachers, deep thinkers, great scholars, and it's just it's it's a uh, very invigorating to see. Uh, their how they combine their scholarship with their testimonies, and truly, as we're told in the New Testament, give reason for the hope that's within them. you'll want to make sure to tune in and hear the Gibbons. they are amazing people and dear friends of mine. you'll also love hearing from Tom Christopherson he thinks he's from England because he's <laughs> such he's such a good friend with um the the mission president and his wife in London, uh, Bishop President Chekets was his stake president when Tom came back into the church. His brother is Elder D. Christofferson, and he uh, distanced himself. Tom distanced himself from the church for a long time because uh, he because of the gay lifestyle he was leading but finally he realized that he was missing something in his life and he came back into full activity in the church and he's helping a lot of people understand that uh we don't distance ourselves from the church because we have struggles and temptations and issues in our lives we deal with those issues within the church the church gives us the circle of support the strength and the motivation and christ gives us the grace with which we can deal with our problems all of us are struggling with something and his message is powerful and beautiful because he says he is finally reaching out to christ and receiving the help he needs as he deals with some of the issues that he has been that he deals with in this life. So you'll love hearing from Tom. He's also a very good friend and a man I admire a great deal. So tune into those firesides; Those are going to be great.
1: One of the few redeeming qualities of Bradgate in Alpine, Utah, is that Brad Wilcox stuck to fearmongering gaslighting racism and sexism, and didn't ice that layer cake of controversy with overt LGBTQ phobia as well, which Dallin Oakes in the same situation would have probably started with. So it is interesting to have on the record confirmation from Sunderland that Brad is aware of those issues, and was joining in weaponizing Tom Christopherson's high-profile decision to leave his long-term same-sex partner and return to full activity and celibacy in the church. Tom is the brother of D. Todd Christopherson, the apostle who has wheeled out to do the toe-curling interview with British Mike Otterson, when Mike was serving as president newsroom a couple of days after the 2015 November policy of exclusion, kicked off a firestorm by making same-sex marriage an excommunicable offence in the category of apostasy and barring children with a parent who had ever cohabited in a same-sex relationship from all church ordinances until they were legal adults, and disavowed their parents' relationship and moved out of their house if they were living in it, as adults. Making D. Todd of all people double down publicly to cheerlead for policies demonising and shunning his own brother even more ruthlessly was the modern equivalent of Joseph Smith asserting his power over his apostles by demanding they give him their wives. In 2020, Tom Christopherson became the next in a very long line of LGBTQ individuals and mixed orientation couples given high profile attention in the church's propaganda as examples of people with either gender dysphoria or what the church calls same-sex attraction choosing to do the right thing as they see it and live celibate lives and replace sexuality and intimate companionship with the life of a Mormon monk or nun, married to Jesus and the general authorities instead of a human, or married to someone they are not primarily attracted to, and try to make that work. As Brad will mention... David and Deborah Checkitz were the wonderful and woke leaders of the London mission who really went the extra mile trying to create more tolerance for LGBTQ people here, but also sanitising the church's homophobic doctrines and policies as they walked the impossible line between compassion and religious homophobic orthodoxy. They had Tom Christofferson speak to all their missionaries about his experiences, and the Chequette spoke at a groundbreaking stake conference in collaboration with my newly called Woke Stake President, in which three separate talks spoke positively about LGBTQ people, something I never thought I would live to see and hear. They gave me a lot of hope for the future if people like them can dominate the church, but sadly this scenario almost always ends in disaster. It did for Josh and Lolly Weed, who graciously apologised profusely for their role in the shame games when they got divorced in 2018. And David Matheson, who was a leading sexuality conversion therapist who accepted his homosexuality and apologised for the harm he had done for years in 2019. This scenario of mixed orientation marriages collapsing as one partner stops suppressing and being ashamed of their true sexuality has played out over and over again around me in my church community. It has been something on the fringes of my awareness since childhood when Carolyn Pearson was just starting to write about the same happening to her marriage. And one of my dad's mission companions finally divorced after raising a large Mormon family long before we had today's empathy and awareness of what this all involves. He has now found happiness and peace in a same-sex relationship, but obviously the impact on his wife and children was severe and tragic. The high turnover of the church's poster people for obedient LGBTQ celibacy or forced heteronormativity, is a relentless and ruthless machine. As each one falls off the pedestal, they are swiftly removed from the Mormons and Gays website and LDS Living social media feeds, and replaced by the next person to step up and be used by thousands of LDS parents to shame their LGBTQ children for not being like them. Famous LDS singer and youth role model David Archuleta, who has been omnipresent for years in official LDS youth events and propaganda, has been incredibly brave as he has spoken movingly and powerfully about his journey to accept his bisexuality or homosexuality and the pressures he lived with to suppress that side of himself until it became psychologically harmful and impossible to maintain. And he has been just one of several high-profile Latter-day Saints working through the same process, too often staring suicidal ideation in its deathly face, and speaking up to try and give others like them reassurance and hope. Unsurprisingly, since this fireside a year and a half ago, Tom Christopherson has already indicated he may not be planning to stick with lifelong celibacy after all, and another mixed orientation couple are now being featured in church propaganda. The whole psychodrama of the church's intense and aggressive homophobia continues to leave a train of carnage in the relentless march of its covenant path but increasingly also a rainbow-coloured parade of brave stories of hope and liberation. And the vast majority of LDS young people are never going to be persuaded to join in the hate. So the homophobic dinosaurs and the local leaders parroting their rhetoric need to get real fast, or they will lose the whole corporation when those kids grow up.
0: Now... Uh, I was speaking to some youth the other day, and they said, this is a lousy time to be a youth. This is terrible because of COVID. This is an awful time to be a youth. And then I spoke to some missionaries, and they said, this is an awful time to be a missionary. This is the worst time to be a missionary. And I said, no way. This is the best time to be a youth in the church This is the best time to be a missionary because the Titanic has tilted and people are suddenly looking for a lifeboat and we are in the lifeboat. The world is the Titanic and it's starting to tilt, but we're in the lifeboat and it puts us in a wonderful position to be able to reach out. And to help others. You remember the story of the Titanic. It was was, uh, said to be an unsinkable ship. Why did they claim that? Well, because it was built in compartments. See, any ship before had been built uh, as one compartment. So if it got a hole in it, filled up with water, the ship sank. But they built this one in multiple compartments. So the thinking was if one compartment got a hole and filled up with water, the ship could still stay afloat. The newspapers in England said God himself cannot sink this ship. But you know the story it sank on its maiden voyage across the Atlantic. Why? Because they hit an iceberg and the iceberg punched holes clear along the side of the ship. So many compartments started filling with water. The captain said, get to the lifeboats. And the passengers didn't go because they had been convinced that they were on an unsinkable ship. So they were sure that what what the captain was doing was just a drill it was just like a fire drill there wasn't a real fire nobody was in danger they were just being overly cautious and so they wouldn't get on the lifeboats one of the saddest things about the entire story is that the first lifeboats left the ship half full and you think oh man what went wrong well, if you just watch the movie, it makes it look like it was the crew's problem. But if you read the accounts the way I have, if you actually read the experiences from survivors, they say it wasn't the crew's fault. It was the passenger's fault. Have you ever wondered why 126 men lived? Well, the rule for the day was women and children first. So how come 126 men lived through that experience? It's because the women wouldn't get on. The children wouldn't get on. I don't want to go out that little lifeboat out there. Oh, I don't want to go out there where it's cold and and, and, and it's dark and you're just alone out on that ocean. I'll stay here on this unsinkable ship. I'll stay here where the lights are on. I mean, they knew something had happened. The ship had stopped. The engine wasn't running anymore. They knew something had happened, but they thought that the crew was fixing it, and pretty soon they'd go back to their cabins. And so they sat there with the lights on, the orchestra playing, the first-class passengers sipping champagne, and they didn't want to get on the lifeboats. They refused to get on the lifeboats. But then something happened. The Titanic, tilted and then where did everybody want to be on the lifeboats see at first everybody thought that people getting on the lifeboats were being stupid oh my gosh are they overreacting or what they're being silly but then when the titanic tilted suddenly people didn't think they were being so silly anymore suddenly they thought oh those guys are the smart ones they're already on their lifeboat. And they wanted to get on lifeboats as well. What does this have to do with what we're going through? Six months ago, I read newspaper headlines. Newspapers, children, are what we used to use in the olden days. I would read newspaper headlines that said, nothing can stop this economy. The stock market has never been stronger. The unemployment rate has never been lower. Nothing can stop this economy. Huh? Does that sound familiar? This is an unsinkable ship. Then along came a little virus, a virus that we can't even see. And it brought the entire world to its knees. Not only were people dying, not only were people sick, but people were affected in every aspect of their lives. Schools closed. Suddenly, we didn't have a place to gather. Suddenly, we couldn't go outside of our homes. I mean, unemployment rate is now higher than it was during the Great Depression. And people are realizing that maybe they were missing something in their lives. People are realizing that maybe they were not as humble as they should have been six months ago nobody wanted to talk about God nobody wanted to talk about religion nobody wanted to talk about Jesus but now six months later the world is tipped and suddenly people are realizing that maybe they do want to talk about those subjects maybe they do want to find out about lifeboat do you realize the general conference that we attended last April was the highest, it was the most widely viewed general conference in the history of the church by over 5 million additional viewers. Take whatever the highest viewers were in the past, and that conference topped it by over 5 million more viewers. Why? Because the world tipped. And because people were looking for a light people were looking for hope, people were looking for optimism, people were looking for salvation, they were looking for help, and they turned to general conference. Wow, is this a bad time to be a youth in the church? No, this is a great time is this a bad time to be a missionary no this is a great time is this a bad time to be in a lifeboat no it's a great time to be in a lifeboat because from our place in the lifeboat we can reach out and we can help others who are
1: struggling Brad's analogy of the Titanic and the lifeboats was of course profoundly ironic, there are lots of people who point out that rather than being the lifeboats saving people from the sinking ship of the dreadful world outside, it is the good ship Zion that has tilted and is objectively by every metric sinking fast. But the general authorities and TBM members in denial are flatly refusing to acknowledge this reality and the danger they are all in, and are carrying on singing, Follow the Prophet, as usual, while their own children abandon ship and their stakes crumble around them.
0: In our lifeboat, we believe in God. You know, a study was done and released recently that was called The Global God Divide. And it talked about how more young people today are identifying themselves as atheists than ever before. It also said that more people today say that you don't have to believe in God to be a good person. You can still be an ethical and good person and not believe in God. So it all sounds really good on paper. Oh, you believe, I don't believe, that's fine. We're all just getting along. But guess what? The study shows that when a crisis hits, that's when suddenly a belief in God makes a difference because. Those who believe are the ones who will turn and help someone else. And those who don't believe, their true colors come out. Well, they say they can be ethical, they say they can be nice, but when the crisis hits, it's the non believers who will step all over anyone who's in their path to reach their selfish aim, to reach their own ambitious desire. So the way we believe in God affects the way we see ourselves and it affects the way we treat other people. So can we just say, oh, that's fine. You believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. No, believing in God matters because it changes the way we view and treat each other. There was a professor at BYU, a law professor, who spoke to the university community in a devotional, and he said this, what if we're wrong? What if God doesn't exist? He said, I am willing to be wrong in this way. If it means believing and treating others as if they are children of God, With the potential of becoming beings like unto a perfect and perfectly loving God. I'd rather make the mistake of attributing meaning and love to a universe that is meaningless and indifferent than vice versa. Besides, he said, we're not wrong. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. Can you see love? Can you prove love exists? Can you sense love with your senses? Or does it go beyond that? He says this. He says love is the most powerful force in the universe. And I'm not sure we have any reason to believe love is real if we reject the existence of God, who is the source of love we don't apologize for believing in god there are a lot of people who have felt the titanic tip and suddenly they're realizing that maybe their life was missing something because they had chosen not to believe in god we also don't apologize in our lifeboat for believing in organized religion now it's very popular today to hear people say well i'm spiritual I'm not religious if you haven't heard that then you haven't been listening because lots of people are saying those words what it means is well I believe in God fine. I'm I'm fine if God exists but I don't want him to ask anything of me I certainly don't want him to give me any commandments or requirements I'm okay to just be spiritual and not be religious We live in societies. We live in families. And as long as we live in groups, then we need religion. We need the group practice of spirituality. We need the expectations, the routines, the standards of religion that force us to bring that mountaintop spirituality down to where the rubber hits the road. I mean, it's easy to say I love everyone until you're driving on a freeway and the lady in front of you is texting and swerving all over. See, that's when suddenly you don't need spirituality. You need religion. You need something that says, okay, I better force myself to put what I say I believe into practice. See, you don't don't need anything more than spirituality until your brother gets in your room again and goes through all your stuff. And you're like, dang it, I have told him not to do this, but he's still doing it just to make you mad. See, you don't need spirituality. Oh, I love everyone let's have peace on earth no you need religion you need something that's going to hold you accountable for whether you are practicing what you preach or not see spirituality is great but you know sometimes we need a little more than that especially when that lady in your ward gets up and bears her testimony every stinking month. Even after the bishop says, now we want everyone to have a turn, and she still gets up there and goes on for 20 minutes, and the whole congregation sits and puts up with it. Why? Because they're spiritual? No, because they're religious. Because they're willing to say, you know what if i really say i love everyone then that means i have to love people even when they're not acting lovable and that is what organized religion can do for us especially this organized religion i have a student who said to me i don't believe in organized religion anymore and i said well how do you feel about organized airports I mean, would you really want to fly out of an airport where everybody just does whatever he wants? No security lines. Oh, no, no, no. Terrorists, welcome. Walk on through. Pilot, oh, he didn't show up. But one of the flight attendants thinks he wants to take a swing at it, so he's going to be flying the plane. And you know what? Up in the tower, the control tower, the... We don't know whether they're playing video games or whether they're actually paying attention to what's going on, but that doesn't matter because everybody can just do whatever he wants. Would you feel safe? Would you feel safe doing that? Would you feel safe? I wouldn't feel safe. I wouldn't feel safe, and I wouldn't feel secure, and I wouldn't feel like I would could have confidence that I'm going to get to my destination. It's the organized airport that makes us feel safe and gets us where we need to go. So why do people think that we don't need organized religion or they make organized religion out to be some sort of an enemy? Is an organized airport an enemy? Is it the problem? No, it's the solution to the problem. And it's the same thing when we consider our organized religion. You know, six months ago, the big news was how wealthy the Church of Jesus Christ is. Whoa, they got millions of dollars stashed away in bank accounts. Whoa, isn't that interesting? That was the big news, and everybody thought that was so immoral to have all that money saved away. But nobody was saying that that was wrong when it came time to fly missionaries home from all over the world on chartered flights that cost millions of dollars when planes weren't even flying. I didn't hear anybody complaining then. See, then all of a sudden, everybody said, wow, the church was so smart to have some money saved away for a rainy day. See, I don't hear people complaining now that the church can help other people and provide food for families whose parents are out of work boy nobody's complaining now because our chapels are being used as hospitals all over south america see everybody's sitting around watching how COVID is affecting the entire world And everybody's saying, somebody ought to do something. Well, guess what? You're doing something. Because you're part of this organized religion. At a time where you can't even get a passport to travel, you can't go down to South America and help people. But we've got boots on the ground already. We've got an organization in place all over the world. And do you realize that just since March, The church has been involved with well over 400 major service initiatives in over 100 countries.
1: I thought he had good points to make about the difference organised religion can make to encourage people to get together in communities, challenging themselves to really live by the ideals of improving yourself and being patient with frustrating people and doing so with professional expertise and authority figures. To which I would add mountains of guilt and propaganda to prioritise the organisation over your own interests to accomplish the high-intensity commitment that post-Mormons have found you simply cannot replicate in one organisation without those additional positive and harmful controlling ingredients. So they are exploring ways to find parts of those community and service experiences in several places and ways that society offers and be fulfilled. They also often discover that that their smaller social network of friends outside the church are far more lasting and sincere than what they used to think were real friendships from people playing roles at church on assignment rather than really connecting with each other but sadly Brad sabotaged his good points about that with the lies that nobody can have spirituality without the church and describing the Enzyme Peak controversy as claiming that the church has, quote, millions of dollars, when it is actually billions, thousands of millions. He wildly inaccurately claims that the wisdom of this proved itself when the church flew its American missionaries home as COVID kicked off in chartered flights. The cost of that would have been a microscopic drop in the ocean of the $1 to $2 billion surplus tithing the church takes every year, with no need to touch Enzyme Peak at all. He also did not mention that the church raised the amount missionaries from developed countries have to pay to serve from $400 a month to $500 a month in the year COVID went global. With 51,000 proselyting missionaries and 30,000 service missionaries paying $8 million more to the church every month, those missionaries more than covered the cost of those chartered flights from their own pockets without needing to dip into any savings pots. Similarly, the amount the church spends on humanitarian aid is microscopic compared to the resources at its disposal, and none of it is coming from the Enzyme Peak Advisors' mountain of gold. Brad did not come close to honestly representing to the audience the real nature and scale of the church's money hoarding. So... What do you think is going to happen when those young people repeat what he told them to believe about the church's finances to someone who can then show them the real data on their phone? They will be embarrassed and humiliated and disillusioned that he misled them. Nice one, Brad. Really helpful as Pink Floyd had my generation singing in our 1970s primary school playground every time we felt like staging a rebellion against the man. We don't need your education. Oi, teacher, leave them kids alone.
0: In fact, my students showed me a post the other day that said, Jesus Christ is a racist he taught the Jews but he wouldn't teach the Gentiles he's a racist and we need to tear down every statue of Jesus Christ so are you going to turn on him you're going to turn your back on Jesus Christ because somebody in the world decided that he's not popular or he's not politically correct no way no way We will continue to follow Jesus Christ. He is the captain of
1: the lifeboat. Again with the exaggerations. Using an isolated meme to feed the paranoid persecution complex that everyone outside the church is out to get us and remove Christ from our lives while also ignoring that the people he was criticising had a factual point. Jesus absolutely was objectively discriminating on the basis of race in his three-year ministry. While he sometimes healed and spoke to non-Jews like the Samaritan woman and the Roman centurion, The Roman was actually a Jewish convert and a Samaritan woman wanting to be blessed had to nag him to cough up her blessing as a crumb falling from his Jewish table to be granted that exception to his Jews only rules. It is Peter and Paul after his death who are described in the book of Acts as having revelations to take the gospel to the Gentiles as well in the face of stiff opposition from the Christian Jewish traditionalists. Bearing in mind the horrified response to Brad's casual racism in the Alpine fireside, it takes on extra significance to hear him insisting here that a leader who is Jesus, or by implication speaking as Jesus' prophetic mouthpiece, should have our unconditional loyalty because of their authority even if they are practicing racist discrimination i would also observe that brad's high level of reliance on anecdotal encounters like that as his main source of information to judge what's really being thought and done in wider society and offering such things to the youth as evidence supporting his worldview indicate that he is not very well informed about the wider world or intentionally exaggerating and misrepresenting it, that he doesn't really study as much research data as he likes to make it seem. He is carefully selecting only what confirms his worldview and what he wants the kids to believe. I never heard anyone say in the Black Lives Matter debates about removing statues of racists and slave traders that we should tear down statues of Jesus because he is a racist it might even be that the social media posts the student showed him was satirizing the statue toplers either way Brad uses this as a starting point to slander a much larger movement and social situation on the basis of a tiny outlying statement by someone not representing the movement and ignoring the actual point of black lives matter which is not to make Jesus statues illegal. Also, I am so horrified by the LDS Church adopting the idolatrous Roman Catholic veneration of images with the now ubiquitous Christus statues missionary sisters try to make you cry in front of at visitor centers that we used to condemn as a blatant indicator of apostasy and now even putting one in the church's logo, that if there was a campaign to ban Jesus statues, I would be very tempted to vote for it. I'm so hopping mad at this desecration of our restoration principles. I have listened to general authorities hysterically exaggerating all my life to terrify the faithful when they comment on progressive movements they don't approve of. They have taught that Latter-day Saints should oppose Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement because the communists like to see America having problems. They have taught that we should mobilise to oppose legalising same-sex secular marriage in the USA because there might be a scenario where allowing that leads to the state forcing us to marry gay people in temples in the country with the most robust religious freedom laws on earth. Or, because if everyone goes gay, no more children will be born. Seriously, because that could really happen. If we legalise same-sex marriage, everyone will eventually go gay and there will be no more babies. Our species will die out. But, as Brad points out next, apparently we can totally trust these leaders to have the most wise and trustworthy opinions in the world
0: when we did something in the church called home teaching whoa those were the olden days I remember visiting a family and we were waiting for the father to come home from some meetings at the church and so we were just making conversation with the kids in the family and I was talking to a boy who was about 14 and I said why do you believe in Jesus and he said everybody does and I said, well, everybody in your world does, but not everybody in the world. So why do you believe in Jesus? Do you just believe because everyone else does? He says, no. I said, then why do you believe in Christ? He said, it's in the Bible. I said, it is. But what if somebody came along and said, the Bible's just a myth? bible's folktale the bible wasn't even written for years after so it's just oral tradition that got exaggerated would you still believe in christ <clears throat> he said yeah i said why he said because it's history b c a d the whole calendar revolves around jesus i said you're right But what if somebody came along and started talking about before common era and after common era? What if they take Jesus out of history? Would you still believe? And that young man couldn't give me any more reasons. That's significant. Because those three reasons are the same reasons that most Christians give for believing in Jesus. Why do they believe? Christian tradition. Our ancestors are Christian. My parents, my grandparents were Christian. The Bible and history. But there has to be more. But there has to be. And I'll tell you why. Years ago, I was invited to the eastern part of Canada, Toronto, to speak at a big youth leadership meeting big conference that they had every year. And uh, the mission president was picking me up from one place and driving me to another place. And he said, hey, we're going past the mission home. Do you mind if I swing in? We can grab a bite to eat and I can change my clothes. I said, no problem. So we went to the mission home. And he said, I'm going to turn on the news so you can just watch the news while I get changed. I said, yeah, that's fine. Well, on the news, they were interviewing the director of a movie. Now, most of you will not remember this movie. but Some of the more mature youth who are listening today might remember this movie. The movie was called The Last Temptation of Christ. And it showed Christ in a very human way. In fact, if I'm going to be point blank, it showed him in a very sexual way. Well, people were upset about the film. Christians all over the world were picketing the theaters and they were were going on the talk shows and complaining and they were writing letters to the editor. Well, here they were interviewing the director of the movie. And so I was interested in what he had to say. The lady who was interviewing him said, I think the reason people are upset about your film is because it doesn't follow the Bible's interpretation of Christ's life. And do you know what he said? He said, So? So? The Bible? Give me a break. That thing has been through so many translations. If there's anything true left in the Bible at all, it wasn't even written by Jesus. It was written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They interpreted Christ's life. And if they have the right to interpret Christ's life, who's to say that I don't have the same right? Who's to say that I don't have the same chance to interpret Christ's life that they have? And who's to say that my interpretation isn't better than theirs? Who's to say? Who's to say? Well, the lady doing the interview had no response. She sat there with her mouth hanging open. But the mission president had a response. He came up behind me tying his tie and he said, Brad, we are to say because we Latter-day Saints are the only Christians on this planet whose testimony of Christ is built on something more than history, tradition, and the Bible alone. We have a stronger foundation for our faith. Now, sometimes people will say, Oh, you worship a different Jesus. Now, we worship the same Jesus they worship, but we do have a different foundation. We have a stronger foundation for our faith in Jesus. Why do we believe in Christ? Because Joseph Smith saw him. Why do we believe in Christ? Because we have the Book of Mormon that goes with the Bible and assures us that the Bible is not myth. Why do we believe in Christ? Because we have living prophets and apostles who walk the earth today. They are special witnesses of Christ, just like Peter, James, and John were back when Christ was alive. Why do we believe in Christ? because we have the spirit the spirit that tells us that we're not wrong we're not wrong to believe in god even when people are giving that belief up we're not wrong to believe in this organized religion and we are not wrong to believe in jesus christ the spirit bypasses our senses it touches our hearts inside and it tells us That we are not wrong to be in the lifeboat when the world is sinking around us. We are not wrong. We are in the right place.
1: Nothing Brad said there is abnormal for the basic LDS truth claims about the difference our scriptures and prophets make. But the frustrating thing about this goes back to the Titanic metaphor. Brad knows that the credibility of the Book of Mormon and the church's past narratives about its creation and reliability are being severely challenged. And that his young and old audience are only a couple of clicks away from finding out all about it but he still offers the Book of Mormon as the totally reliable deal clincher that stands all by itself, including, as he went on to tell us, for his son when he was serving a mission in Japan, a country with no wider Christian history and general knowledge or framing. The Book of Mormon brings Japanese people to Jesus without all that extra support from it being culturally normalized to be a Christian except that it is very rare for a missionary in Japan to get a convert any which way. So the Book of Mormon is not being quite as impactful there as described, and the active membership there is also falling relentlessly. Christians have also been in Japan for centuries, so maybe it isn't completely disconnected from the social norms to have Christians around. Brad said our living prophets are the exact equivalents of Peter, James and John. But where are their remarkable revelations? Where is the scripture they write that matches theirs? These old familiar tropes just don't hack it anymore when they can be easily fact checked online.
2: You Reminded me about what yeah. Brigham Young said about old ship Zion. I love that phrase. Yeah. There's a sense of unity in that phrase, isn't there? We appreciate your, your words this evening. Um, one one quick question from me before we go into some some questions that our youth have sent in. Um, your, your talk that you gave at BYU about grace. Why do you feel that that resonates with so well, many we've people got a, in the church? A
0: study was done recently by Dan Judd. He's the dean of religious education at BYU, and Dan Judd studied over six hundred university students, and he found that. Those who understood grace, those who understood this enabling power, this divine help, this um, this endowment of strength that we call grace. Those who understood that they weren't alone, that they didn't have to get their lives put together so that they could go to God, but that God will come and help them get their lives together. Those who understood that showed lower levels of depression, lower levels of anxiety, lower levels of scrupulosity or feeling like you always have to confess, lower levels of shame, lower levels of perfectionism. President Deacon, this isn't a drug we're talking about. This is a doctrine. And that study was published by the Journal of the American Psychological Association. This is legit research that's telling us that we have something that the world needs. We have something that can help and we can teach the world about grace because that provides the hope, the perspective,
1: the purpose that can keep us going. This is significant. One of the main reasons Brad has resonated with loyal fans is his BYU talk referenced by the state president given in 2012 titled His Grace is Sufficient, which is the most popular BYU speech of all time and has had 400,000 downloads on YouTube. Here he shows he has realised that people taught to believe a strong sense of God already loving and accepting them as they are are far more mentally healthy than those who are anxiously perfectionist and think they have to earn god's love and get their lives together to a particular standard before god will even notice them he has taught that god is willingly helping them with where they are now as very imperfect sinners that's wonderful that brad has realized this and is teaching it And referencing some real research to back it up but once again he is being misleading and setting his young audience up for confusion because the first presidency of Russell M Nelson he bears testimony of to them literally teaches the opposite they are doubling down on God's love having to be earned rather than the gospel of grace D. Todd Christofferson has been doubling down on not letting the second commandment to love your fellow man override the first commandment to love God. And by implication, God's instructions to hate on gays and be fundamentalist and intolerant rather than compassionate in our love of the people not conforming to his preferred lifestyle. When Dieter Uchtdorf and Gerrit Gong teach about grace in the terms Brad describes in general conference, they stand out like a sore thumb in stark contrast to the rest of the speakers towing the Salvation by Works Pharisee Christian party line. So I love that Brad is teaching this graceful, already present and accepting God. But it is absolutely not the God his prophet is teaching. The awful mental health consequences he describes the world as suffering without our church's message are in fact the most rampant in high-demand fundamentalist religions like ours has become. It is Latter-day Saint youths who are experiencing an epic of, quote, depression, anxiety, scrupulosity, always feeling you have to confess, shame And perfectionism close quote from Brad our church and community are the people with this disease not the answers to heal the world of it Brad in this specific matter does understand the problem and the solution for it grace embracing Christian Mormonism healing our Pharisee Mormon sickness and as is becoming a pattern Brad profoundly misrepresented the research, he quoted, and encouraged his listeners to draw inaccurate conclusions from. You can Google Daniel K. Judd, grace, and find it easily online. Brad framed the research as measuring and proving that the grace our religion offers is needed by the world outside our religion. I would assume, therefore, that the 635 students surveyed in the research would come from all kinds of different faiths, and none, to check that. But no, it turns out all of them were LDS church members. The research was proving that within our own religion, not internalising a message about grace, results in young Latter-day Saints being drowned in, quote, depression, anxiety, scrupulosity, always feeling you have to confess, shame and perfectionism, close quote. This plug for the research of Daniel K. Judd also points to aspects of Brad's own journey and influences. Daniel Judd served as a counsellor in the Sunday School presidency from 2004 to 2009, Brad served as a Sunday school board member at some point, probably then. Daniel then became chair of the ancient scripture department at BYU. So it was probably Daniel who gave Brad his job when he transferred there from the education department in 2016. Since 2019, Daniel Judd has been dean of the BYU department of religion. Like Brad... Daniel Judd has zero academic qualifications in either ancient scripture or religious studies. He has degrees in zoology from the University of Utah and family science and counselling psychology from BYU. His route to such a senior position in BYU's faculty has been the less academic CES one, having taught seminary and institute in Utah, Arizona and Michigan, and begun his church university professor roles as professor of family sciences at BYU-Idaho. Marriage and family studies seems to be a course at the BYUs that students often express regret for taking in the bloganacle because they find it is not recognised by other academic institutions and is basically worthless when they are job hunting. Whether fairly or not, it seems to be regarded as an academically lightweight BYU invention to contribute to focusing female students on life as a full-time homemaker and mother rather than in academia and the workplace. I don't know enough about it to confirm or deny that, but my main point here is that in the world of the BYUs, That kind of an academic background is enough to propel men like Brad Wilcox and Daniel Judd to being a professor or a dean of ancient scripture or religious studies, totally unrelated fields to the ones they were educated in. We feel
0: alone, we feel isolated. But there are lots of people in this lifeboat called the Church of Jesus Christ And the very fact that I am speaking to you from Utah right now shows that we are united. And this is a worldwide global network of support and friends. And there are people who can help you strengthen your testimony. Look at the people who believe. Look at the people who don't believe. And notice that you see a difference in their lives, you see a difference in their countenances, you see a difference in their attitudes. And so when I look around me, I say, am I a fool to believe? No, not when I see my life and the joy in my life compared to the drama in the lives of others who are struggling in their testimonies
1: these are really horrible and dumb things to say especially considering he is saying them so soon after being more enlightened regarding grace and mental health now he has switched off the compassion and insight button and is teaching the kids that you can tell who the faithful are by their countenance which basically means because they look happy and smiley and don't look like they are having problems. And those struggling with their faith are living lives of drama, as if they are intentionally inviting it and struggling with your testimony is a sign of weakness rather than intelligence and strength as you engage in what Sherry Jew called the wrestle. This really tired but apparently unkillable Mormon countenance trope is the basis of all the dysfunctions in our culture that associate looking perky and constantly expressing gratitude and joy and toxic positivity with worthiness and spiritual superiority and being blessed and approved of by God. It's what leads to so many people eventually leaving the church because of the deep Fakeness and emotional illiteracy or dishonesty of a community of people, especially women, experiencing incredible pressure to make it look like everything is okay and their family life is straight out of a church magazine cover. This nonsense about judging people's worthiness or spiritual strength by their outward appearance, their hairstyle, their clothing, The countenance on their faces, their social confidence and the light in their eyes encourages patronising Mahonries to think they have some kind of magical gift of discernment to determine your righteousness or worthiness in interviews or to come up and stare into your face and say, I feel that you are troubled about something and ask invasive questions without respect for boundaries. It leads to people who put on a good show of being happy and confident and well-groomed all the time, being chosen for leadership roles in wards and stakes and missions, when you might have an actual Nephi or Isaiah sitting next to them and being ignored because they are introverts or have a chaotic home life or dress like a goth or a grime DJ. It is very easy to trick and manipulate people that naive and shallow into trusting and being ripped off by well-groomed smiling fraudsters in a suit as too many Mormons are in our community's affinity fraud epidemic. This intentional gullibility also tricks them into thinking they can perpetuate all these kinds of disconnections from what really matters to Jesus indefinitely And fill the ranks of the leadership with pious frauds in the worst definition of being pious and a fraud, who will teach everyone to perpetuate their echo chamber bubble of Pharisee Mormonism. But in doing so, the church has sown the seeds of its own destruction. It doesn't actually work long term, and it isn't anywhere close to morally, socially, or spiritually healthy. So no wonder Mormon-dominated communities are heaving with antidepressants, secret pornography consumption, plastic surgery and affinity fraud. This comment about, quote, the joy in my life compared to the drama in the lives of others who are struggling in their testimonies, close quote, reminds me of the car crash advert Dallin Oaks and M. Russell Ballard made for their 19th of November 2017 face-to-face with the YSAs, in which they snapped the last shred of my trust in them by claiming the leaders of the church never hid anything from anybody. In the advert, Dallin Oaks associated looking happy and such like with righteousness, and not troubling your brain with pesky thinking stuff like doubts and the questions they had invited young people to submit to them. The kids without questions, quote, look good to me, close quote.
3: And uh, it's going to be good to see what answers you've got for all these questions (laughs) that are coming
4: up. (laughs) Get yourself ready. I don't have answers for a question like, how can I repent? (laughs) <laughs> That's a pretty personal matter. On the other hand, decision making for this uh, age group oh, is yeah. critical, critical. Whether it comes to choosing an eternal partner, or choosing a major, or choosing a place to live, or deciding how to share the gospel with your friends, the young, adults are young adult period is just full yeah. of questions.
3: Well, and, and not only are they full of questions, but uh, it's very, very important that they understand their role. Their role in the future of the church is far beyond maybe what they realize today. And so they need to get answers to some of these questions and stay focused on what really matters in life. Indeed. Because we expect them to rise up and take over direct affairs of the church in the future.
4: Yes, and the young adults that we meet uh, are across a broad spectrum some are filled with the kind of questions that we have here and some are going forward with their lives in a in a very confident way and they look good to me
3: (laughs) i think we'd also have to be honest there may be some of these questions that there is no answer to yes those i think would be the ones we avoid
4: I uh, gave a talk on uh, on the plan of salvation at, at conference and I tried to stay away from the questions we don't have answers to because <laughs> the Lord hasn't revealed a lot of that but he's given us enough to go on and we just need to know how to go on it.
3: That's it.
1: <laughs> Surely Brad and Dalin, it's the kids using their brains and asking questions and struggling to persist in faith despite serious flaws in what the church is teaching them and dramatic upheavals in their lives that they did not ask for and are not their fault, or perhaps even more importantly are their own fault as common or garden sinners who are the real spiritual heroes among our young members, not the people who are finding it easy and are untroubled by quote drama. I think Jesus was very clear on this point.
0: So choose to believe. Choose to say, you know what? I am going to choose a faith. Faith isn't something you have or you don't have. Dang it, I was in the wrong line when they passed faith out. No, faith is something that can develop and it can grow choose to believe and then turn to others who can help you on that belief journey. Turn to others. You are part of a network of friends that extends internationally. Turn to others via internet or in person and say, I need help. How did you gain and strengthen your testimony? How can you help me?
1: I am really intrigued by the recent subtle shifts in GA rhetoric about how to get a testimony. The script I grew up with and taught on my mission and heard taught for many years after was that if you study the scriptures and ask God sincerely with some faith to know if it is true, God will tell you clearly that the Book of Mormon is true or Joseph Smith was a prophet or the Church is true. The evidence combined with that witness of the Holy Ghost will be powerfully convincing. You will experience a burning in your bosom. You will have a testimony of your own. You won't need to take anyone else's word for it. What I am increasingly hearing is statements that faith and belief is a choice, including from President Nelson, you have to choose to believe. To put it bluntly, choose superstition rather than the scientific method route described in Alma 32 of planting a seed of potential faith and then experimenting on the word and giving the church's truth claims a chance to prove themselves by living by them for the trial period and then reviewing your experiences to determine whether they actually worked and made you think and feel more enlightened. And then not overclaim by thinking you now know all about everything, but continue with more specific experiments testing the validity of each truth claim. That caveat to not overclaim or assume believing one thing means other things are true is incredibly important. The norm in Mormon culture is to say that if you feel the Spirit confirming to you that bits of the Book of Mormon are good, then that proves Joseph Smith was always a prophet in every single thing he did and taught. And that 200 years later, Dallin Oaks is definitely a prophet, seer and revelator. And if you oppose the November policy or any policy in the handbook about anything... It is completely acceptable to excommunicate you and take away your salvation and exaltation and break up your eternal family. We have normalized overclaiming and expecting people to associate a specific spiritual witness about the goodness of God or the Book of Mormon with an obligation to submit to unquestioning compliance with anything any church leader says at any point about anything. Alma 32 and several other scriptures and teachings by modern prophets in their better moments are very clear that each truth claim must be considered individually. And the laws of common consent and several church manuals and even Dallin Oaks in the March 2020 Enzyme say they should each be authorised by a common consent vote of the members. Alma 32 verse 32. Therefore, if a seed groweth, it is good, but if it groweth not, behold, it is not good. Therefore, it is cast away. And now, behold, because ye have tried the experiment, and planted the seed, and it swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow, ye must needs know that the seed is good. And now, behold, is your knowledge perfect? Yea, your knowledge is perfect in that thing. And your faith is dormant, and this because you know, for ye know that the word hath swelled your souls, and ye also know that it hath sprouted up, that your understanding doth begin to be enlightened, and your minds doth begin to expand. O oh, then, is not this real? I say unto you, yea, because it is light, and whatsoever is light is good, because it is discernible. Therefore ye must know that it is good. And now behold, after ye have tasted this light, is your knowledge perfect? Behold, I say unto you, nay, neither must ye lay aside your faith. For ye have only exercised your faith to plant the seed that you might try the experiment to know if the seed was good. In other words, the seed of that specific truth claim not all the seeds and all the truth claims. So we build a testimony methodically, one seed and one experiment at a time. As I've said in my This is Why Mormonism is Awesome episodes, Alma 32 is remarkable in offering a rational pathway congruent with the Enlightenment and scientific age to develop a belief in religious truth claims. It is a wonderful gift to a religion wanting to make it to the end of the 21st century and be credible to sceptical people using their God-given intelligence to be careful before trusting people with big ideas about how we should change our lives and join their community. I have encountered Christians of all denominations talking about how they struggle to believe and have faith so for them belief is mostly a choice and i had two simultaneous reactions to their approach to religion great pity and great respect pity that they could not be more sure when i was used to a religious community with lots of certainty and confidence about lots of things and offering lots of solutions for the big gaps in the world view of mainstream christianity that offer a much less mysterious and confusing and unjust God than their sadist mainstream Christian God who made us all from nothing already certain of exactly who of us he would end up torturing in hell for all eternity because he sees the end from the beginning but he still created all those millions of future torture victims anyway. There's sadist God who predestines some people to have a change to be saved before they die and avoid hell, but He offers no more to us if we make it through that arbitrary Hunger Games after an often short and violent life of suffering and disease, than a place in a cheerleading team telling Him how great He is. I know that not all Christians believe exactly like that, but fundamentally most of them do. Or if they don't, they have no specific scriptures telling them otherwise. They mostly condemn the Mormon idea that God wants us to become creator gods too as blasphemous arrogance. I disagree. A God who has children but does not want them to become everything he or she or it is, as an equal, or maybe even accomplish more than themself, like we wish for our own children, makes no sense to me and is an egomaniac narcissist despite all the professions of total parental love and defining being like God as the Christ-like self-humbling prioritising of other people. Why would the Judeo-Christian deity set us up here as parents and children capable of that kind of love and developing expertise in those roles throughout our mortal lives not actually do the same himself in his heaven that's meant to be even better than life in this fallen world. Mormonism has a big pile of problems to sort out, but personally I am not running off to any other churches just yet, because they have plenty of their own problems and hypocrisies and inconsistencies and they agree on very few things between themselves while having the cheek to decide that Mormons are too different to them to be considered Christians. But then Mormons complaining about that are total hypocrites because they don't recognise the ordinances, authority or doctrines of any other Christian denominations either. As well as pity for them being trapped with the sadist God The simultaneous feeling of great respect for the Christians I was worshipping and studying with on my mission in the Bible Belt in Alabama and at Christian Union at secondary school and university was for their deep faith based on far less rational argument or evidence or answers to questions than I felt I had and the humility to trust to God who did not explain anything like as much of himself or his purpose for our life on earth as mine did. And I was amazed how they could keep on going each day while believing that all of mankind was in terrible and offensive rebellion against God and guilty, 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 born guilty, and even when we think we are doing good, it is nowhere good enough to be pleasing to God, and everything about the world is a plan B mess, and not how God had wanted humans to experience life in the Garden of Eden plan A, and somehow this is all our own fault, and we should accept guilt and shame for this, even though we weren't there when Eve ate the fruit, or involved in that decision, I complain a lot about the unnecessary guilt and shame Pharisee Mormon religion wallows in but my giddy aunt the grass is really not greener in the other churches on that front doctrinally. A lot of them do better at helping their members feel personally liberated from guilt and shame but their overall theology of fall and redemption is riddled with guilt and shame and I like my doctrines to be consistent with the personal lived experience of religion. I love how Mormonism at its best gives all the glory to God for the atonement and forgiving grace, while at the same time valuing and being positive about our own personal achievements and good works as a way to please God and fulfil his wishes for our development. We have been accused in anti-Mormon literature and preaching of having a religion that believes we are saved by our works but that is not precise enough. We are saved by grace and acknowledge we cannot be good enough to make ourselves perfect without a lot of divine intervention and the idea that we are saved after all we can do has really unhelpfully been weaponized in LDS Mormonism to read as we must do every single thing right that is humanly possible for us to do every day, then God will reach down and do the rest, which is effectively telling people they have to earn grace and be practically perfect in every way and every day or they cannot be saved. I have also heard taught over one of our pulpits A far more sensible reading of that verse framing it as an acknowledgement that we can never do good enough and will always need grace even if we do all that we could possibly do right so it's pointless guilt tripping ourselves to be anxious perfectionists and this all feeds into extreme controlling gatekeeping by men with institutional power As well as telling you conceptually you are not right with God unless you are doing a daily list of over 100 things all the time that are far too many to fit into a week, even if you could do them full-time, you will also regularly be interrogated to check that you are meeting thresholds of measurable religiosity, paying a full tithe, not drinking alcohol or tea or coffee, wearing your temple garments all the time, completely supportive of anything the leaders are teaching before you can approach the exalting ordinances of the temple that are essential to salvation in the top tier of the celestial kingdom. The church and its clergy will inform you if you are acceptable to God and can proceed past the ranks of angelic palace guards to approach the throne of God. The version of Mormonism I gleaned growing up from all the sometimes contradictory preaching is that Christ's atonement is offered generously to the penitent who humble themselves and ask for the help and want to live like and be like Jesus, the good and compassionate role model, that the desires of our heart count a lot more than measurable performance. But if we want to do more than just exist for eternity, part of our freedom to choose is our freedom to choose to get educated, to learn the knowledge and skills and mindset of a God. That our ambitious journey to become capable of more and better until we can create worlds if we want to is an educational process that requires study, experiments, learning from every experience putting virtuous and creative ideas into practice in the real universe. I am very spoiled that my vocation and career as an artist and art teacher makes me very aware and appreciative of how much humanity's endless variations of creativity and what it takes to trust and grow our creative potential is part of that process, not just behaving correctly. Good behaviour matters a lot. A school will descend into chaos and bullying cruelty without clear rules and consistently applied discipline and justice administered by authority figures. But that must always be done with thoughtful care and restraint or the school itself becomes a system of bullying cruelty. Mercy and adapting to the needs and circumstances of each individual and endless patience are also required for a healthy community of young learners to flourish. But while requiring conformity to one shared ethos or set of values, it is essential that this does not crush individual thought, expression, creativity and a diversity of pathways determined in collaboration with each pupil. We will have failed if they all graduate thinking the same, looking the same, and heading towards the same careers in the same subject area. We are making individuals who function together as a broadly talented community, not clones. And if they don't get to make their own choices about all the things that can be reasonably given to them to decide, they will be miserable and lose their own integrity and sense of self as seminary scripture doctrine and covenants 58 taught me when I was 14 years old if we are not anxiously engaged in choosing our own ways to live and apply the gospel of Jesus Christ and instead waiting to be told what we are allowed to think and do by leaders we will have no joy in the gospel We will be miserable and half-hearted and ultimately damned it is that important to not live a life passively imprisoned by exact obedience to leaders and allowing them to do our thinking and choosing for us. And damned here, I don't think, just means punished by God. I was taught that it is a simple statement of fact. In Mormon theology, damnation is literally progressing no further than where you are now, becoming stuck, not being able to move on to the next potential state of our existence. In our scriptures, the word for each stage is estate, as in, they kept not their first estate. Lucifer and the spirits that followed him could not progress to get a body, The people who made it to getting a body, but are damned at this stage, will keep it. They will be resurrected with the body after death, but cannot then step up to the next level and create spirit bodies for other intelligences, and so on. Doctrine and Covenants 58 verses 26 to 29 is one of the most important scriptures in our canon. Personally, I rank it as second only to Doctrine and Covenants 121 in importance, as specifically defining the philosophy of our ideas about what it is to be a God and a follower of God in the Christian Mormon religion. And both scriptures specifically contrast this with its opposite in the Pharisee or Lucifer religion. Quote, for behold, it is not meet that I should command in all things. For he that is compelled in all things, the same as a slothful and not a wise servant. Wherefore, he receiveth no reward. So take note, Russell and Wendy Nelson. This scripture says that exact obedience to you in every thought and deed doesn't get any kind of reward from God. It doesn't count for anything in the long run. It is only what we do independently of your micromanaging, governing ourselves as we apply the correct principles of our religion that is of any interest to God in the true Christian Mormon religion. This is a very simple but life-changing idea. It matches well with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that loving people who love us doesn't count for anything to him. It is its own reward, and anyone will do that as a natural instinct. It doesn't involve any kind of stretch and challenge to become more than an animal. Doctrine and Covenants 58 goes on to explain, Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will. And bring to pass much righteousness. For the power is in them, wherefore they are agents unto themselves. And inasmuch as men do good, they shall in no wise lose their reward. But he that doeth not anything until he is commanded, and receiveth a commandment with doubtful heart, and keepeth it with slothfulness, the same is damned. Close quote. Everything you need to know is in the seminary scriptures. The Mormonism that works is the one that teaches correct principles and provides basic structure, but then trusts each of us to govern ourselves and what we think and do about everything else. It rebels against the pharisaical impulse to have authoritarian control freaks micromanage all those things down to the smallest detail, like how many earrings you can wear. When you allow for that individual creativity and practical freedom, the results are extraordinary. A world full of exciting variety in music, design, theatre, film, computer games, fashion, art, dance, literature. All the things that make life interesting and exciting and inspiring. And the creativity never stops. Artists and designers and musicians and writers and choreographers are always coming up with something new, even when it seems impossible, and surely everything has already been thought of and tried. And delightfully, the same is happening in science. All kinds of tired assumptions about the nature of reality and the laws of physics in Sir Isaac Newton's clockwork universe, predictably following rules are being turned upside down as the quantum physics of a universe with maybe 11 dimensions of space and 90% of its mass invisible and not following the laws of physics the rest of the universe seems to follow has blown up science as we knew it and opened all kinds of doors to new ideas and possibilities. This understanding for me is one of the most important and precious unique gifts Mormonism has to offer the Christian world. The vision that every individual has the potential within them to become creator gods. That every corner of a universe teeming with trillions of galaxies and worlds can have its own unique designs, life forms and stories that follow a general pattern but are never exactly the same that this is the purpose of existence and the life of sentient intelligences within this universe. Imagine a world now where there was never anything new. No new discoveries, no new experiences, no new music, art, fashion or ideas about how we could experience life or organise our societies. You just have to keep recycling old ideas about all these things in endless repetition. What would be the point of being alive? But that is what the Pharisees in any religion or political or philosophical movement offer and crave. They want everything to stop. To never change from how things are now, or ideally to go back to how things were in their own formative years, That they feel most nostalgic about if they have no creativity this is what you get when nearly all your general authorities are lawyers and business managers and surgeons and next to none of them are artists designers scientists craftsmen farmers philosophers historians theologians musicians or writers as their primary education and career None of them have the main skill set needed to understand and lead a religion. The ranks of the General Authorities are now rampacked precisely as Hugh Nibley warns they would be in his leaders and managers' swan song, with managers rather than religious leaders, who don't even understand the whole point of their religion and what being a creator god really requires on its career training covenants path. They think micromanaging control freakery and getting very, very, very rich, and tweaking management structures and meeting schedules and asset management is the definition of good leadership and success, because it is in the world of lawyers and business managers. They think that convincing customers and courtrooms to believe your one sided and often dishonestly manipulative advertising or legalistic propaganda that makes people love your client and your products and never find out about their faults, and building prestige buildings and launching new logos and brand identities literally is the definition of good leadership and success. Because in the world of lawyers and business management that they have been educated and worked in for years, that is precisely the A-star, top-notch, diamond standard definition of success and successful leadership. And if you are a heart surgeon like Russell Nelson or a cardiologist like Dale Renland, it is essential that everyone in a team does precisely what the chief surgeon tells them to – without questioning it or the patient dies so their whole world is all about exact obedience to the leader or everything falls apart this fundamental error in who got given all the leadership and decision making power is the one simple explanation for everything that has gone wrong in our religion the nonconformist individual blue sky thinkers who created this religion and cranked out scripture like confetti machines have now been replaced by drones with no imagination and no clue. In the absence of any other framework, they are running the church like an operating theatre or an American business corporation with cheap or mostly slave labour. They are investing their vast profit margins in property and stock market portfolios and obsessing about logos and meetings and presenting both as their ultimate revelatory gifts to the world while their workers and customers flee. These general authorities haven't claimed or canonized a single doctrinal idea or significant revelation of new knowledge for over a century now, since Joseph F. Smith's 1918 Doctrine and Covenants section 138 vision about the afterlife. The very few things they have claimed as revelatory and super-significant since then were either cleaning up a mistake that should never have happened in the first place, like the 1978 official declaration ending racist priesthood and temporal segregation, or the 2019 declaration ending the three-and-a-half-year-old policy of exclusion debacle, or rooted in common or garden patriarchal sexism and homophobic bigotry stolen lock stock and musket barrel from the reactionary evangelical Christian social conservatives of the USA's politicised Christian right wing like the still not canonised Family Proclamation. The Christian right seemed to be on the ascendancy in the 1980s but our prophets and apostles are not capable of predicting even the immediate future and totally backed the wrong horse. End Times Obsessed, Fear Mongering, Culture Warrior, Evangelical Conservatives have now crashed as well, and are rapidly losing their children and adult flocks for the same reasons. And just like the LDS leaders, they are blaming everyone but themselves for this disaster. Suddenly, the world has got too evil, or too selfish, or too educated, or too secular even though both religious movements had no trouble growing steadily through two world wars and far more radical social changes in the 20th century. It can't possibly be because people have concluded that Jesus wasn't about hating and legislating against the vulnerable and the outcast, getting rich or being spoken at like children and bored out of your minds at church. Years ago, I read in the church's New Era magazine for teenagers about a youth convention with the theme slogan You Gotta Wanna, based on Elder Jack Goslin's April 1991 General Conference talk with the same name, which is typical American over-the-top nonsense, having to turn everything into a commercially branded catchphrase to British sensibilities. But it stuck with me, and I loved the idea behind it. It's saying you have amazing potential within you to reach for, but you have to choose to develop it. You gotta wanna reach for it. We used to be a church that talked constantly about our potential and learning new skills and developing our talents and discovering the very individual gifts we have to work with and contribute the personal plan God has for your life in your circumstances. In modern jargon, at its best, it was motivating, self actualizing multicultural, appreciating and valuing diversity, like Paul's wonderful metaphor of the church being a body in which the foot may be completely different to the head, but both are essential and one cannot do without the other. One of the consequences of the Pharisee takeover of power in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that it has killed that hopeful, realistic and empowering philosophy. They have turned the Church into a miserable, homogenous death cult. There is only one covenant path to be exactly obedient to. It isn't the one God has planned for you that may be very different to the person next to you, It is one size fits all if you want to go to the celestial kingdom. You must be performing impressively in your exact obedience to it before you die or you probably won't be going there and your family will never see you again in what Nelson observers have accurately dubbed his sad heaven. Dallin Oaks was crystal clear again in April 2022 General Conference that anyone not following that exact path of heterosexual temple-sealed marriage and childbearing can bog off to one of the lesser kingdoms, and the church is under no obligation to cater for their needs or minister to them because its entire purpose is to service the elite. Forget that Jesus stuff about prioritising the lost sheep. This church is all about the mainstream conformists having a simple time in the fortress fold. And instead of seeking personal revelation for the path you should take and what God's plan for your life is, the First Presidency and Quorum of Twelve Apostles will tell you, down to the minutest detail, what you are allowed to believe and think about everything. If they have not included clear instructions about something or got answers to your questions about a particular matter, that means God does not want you to think or speak about it at all. You will be informed by the apostles when God decides that you have permission to talk about or pray about or think about it. Just as Dale Renland said in that conference regarding Heavenly Mother. Meanwhile, shut up and wait patiently because they have decided it doesn't matter. You are asking the wrong questions. It is, quote, Arrogance to ask them. Oh, and the world is about to end. Because the first presidency and most of the apostles are always just a few years from their own deaths, and don't have much of a future to look forward to. So they have decided that the world cannot possibly go on for long without them, and you shouldn't look forward to your future much either. So they are telling the teenagers that they are the Lord's battalion. The children's crusaders who will march into the final battle of Armageddon, fighting gay marriage and usher in the millennium, probably over their own dead bodies if you take the prophecies about that seriously. Oh, and just to add to the hopeless misery of it all, the whole world is a really horrible place that's never been so bad. Everyone is confused and lying to you in school in social media, in politics, on the news. You can only trust Russell Nelson. So your entire mental and practical world should be entirely defined by him, according to himself and his wife and the more psychophantic general authorities. So hunker down and prepare for everything to go to poo. I mean... Is it any wonder the Mormon conversion machine that used to be going great guns has ground to a juddering halt, when that's our message to the world now? And we will start every conversation with the muggles by piously defining our non-Mormon pronouns to make them uncomfortable. Then talk about how the gender benders obsessed with defining their pronouns represents the collapse of civilization and all that is holy, while mentally condemning the people we are talking to as scum-sucking whores of Jalunda, because they have two pairs of earrings and a cappuccino. Mormon Stories recently interviewed fascinating evangelical Christian Stephen Pinecker, who is a huge fanboy of Mormonism and very knowledgeable about it, and hosts the Mormon Book Reviews podcast. When asked in episode 1573 what his favourite things about Mormonism are, and his advice to the Church to help it die more slowly, he addressed the Mormon concept of free agency, and lamented that the Church now doesn't allow the free agency it once did, as I have been describing. Starting 18 minutes in, he spoke about how it is a universal process that radical new organizations over time lose their original zing and stagnate into increasing control freakery, and asked simply, what good is free agency if you don't have any choices to make? But yeah, this idea that, um,
5: of control, but that goes back to how we d- discussed before, there's this uh, there's this impulse within organizations. It's not just the LDS church. Almost all churches have what you could look at as that beginning spark where there was a spontaneity and there was this move of the spirit. And then it just slowly but surely gets clamped down, controlled. So I think this is a human impulse. I don't think this is just the church. Oh, I think this, sure. is, this is a human Every impulse. Church ever. Yeah, basically, that's yeah. what happens, yeah.
6: You know, if, I think if, if I think the modern Mormon Jesus. Church
7: sees itself as the intermediary between the members and Jesus. I really do. Just bishops. The fact that you don't, you don't. Jesus, your repentance yeah. isn't between you and Jesus. Repentance is between you and your bishop, right? And and even temple, you, you have to pay your tithing, or you to the church, or you can't get the most important ordinances. Like, I think the church just really needs to be in between you. No, and I'm not saying this for nefarious reasons. I think they're sincere. They're just like, hey, trust us. You know, we understand Jesus best. We'll help you have the right relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm th- maybe Heroda? I mean, yeah,
3: I'm, no, I agree with that.
7: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, they are special witnesses of Christ. The Mormon apostles call themselves special witnesses, which means better than everyone else in the world. Basically,
5: I mean, that's how an outsider would certainly perceive it. That that's what the claim that they're making. And so, and then so that they wonder why other groups might be a little offended by them, you know, that that might be part of the reason that they're making these claims. You know, I got on this list here, actually, I think that I can combine a few things here and that is more freedom of thought and conscience. um, Make the word of wisdom voluntary and make tithing voluntary. And, and I think that all comes ties into a, a theme here, which is, you got to give more autonomy to the individual. One of the interesting concepts within Mormonism is free agency, but what good is free agency if you don't have any choices to make, right? So I think when I when I talk, wrote down these three uh, ideas is that um, with, within Protestantism the idea kind of there's like radical there's a notion of individualism and in the individual's relationship with Jesus Christ, but also the idea that you. You make the choices. You choose how to engage these things, and then Jesus gives you liberty. You have liberty in Christ to do things. Whether you know originally the the word of wisdom was not uh, mandatory. It was not you could you could enter the temple and not practice the word of wisdom, and then they made it into a uh, a rule that in order to enter into a holy place, you had to uh, follow the word of wisdom and also. Uh, Tithe and so you're you're basically telling people the only way you can be in a holy place is that you 've got to give up a lot of your autonomy and free agency to be there, which seems to be counter to one of the more interesting doctrines of Mormonism, which is free agency. And Word of Wisdom was voluntary. Tithing was voluntary. All these things that I'm mentioning to you is already baked. It was there from the beginning that, that, that was already there. So those are ideas that they could just re-embrace. And I think would bring. it would just be good and healthy for people to be able to make their own choices.
7: Yeah, especially with Word of Wisdom. It's so weird that like along the Wasatch Front, people are addicted to like 82-ounce Diet Coke beverages, mm-hmm. but, they, but, but a cup of coffee— or a, or a, you know, glass of green tea or whatever, is like will keep you out of your eternal salvation in yeah.
5: Mormonism. How many people drink Monster energy, energy drinks instead of coffee? And that stuff's just so full of chemicals; it's not healthy. And all the science has come forth now. And this is the thing: like, why can't we look at science and also let see? God gave us the word, and He also gave us creation to inform us. So. Yeah. I mean, but again, it just comes to the concept of like, there's an idea of free agency within Mormonism. And I kind of like some of the concepts that they talk about, but then it's almost like we're going to, we're going to bring this into this doctrine into the fold and it's going to be part of who we are, but then we're going to take a lot of it away from you. And it just seems like this doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me.
1: The recent and current prophets and apostles haven't just crashed the car with their stagnant control freakery they have steered the good ship zion straight into the biggest icebergs they could find and they are now throwing intellectuals women black people lgbtq people and children overboard to drown like a nihilistic machine while filling the hold with gold bars that are making the ship sink faster. Christian Mormonism is about bringing all the best bits of everything together, harvesting the world and our life experiences for wisdom and sharing it, seeking and giving answers, seeking knowledge by discussing things rather than silencing people with something to say to us that we haven't learnt or considered before. Respecting God as great but also having an intimate family relationship with heavenly parents who love us just as we are, while encouraging us to become more, just as human parents do. Not keeping their distance until we earn their love and put on our Sunday best clothes and kneel in a dark room and imagine ourselves approaching God on a high throne above us and hoping that he can be bothered to glance in our direction for a moment. This was literally what Elder Holland and President Iring taught the teenagers on their 4th of March 2017 face-to-face at Palmyra that I've discussed in a previous episode. It seems impossible, I know, but they really did. Brad really isn't the only general authority teaching demoralising and disempowering evil to the kids, and I would argue that what these two taught was even worse. Have these lazy learners ever really read the New Testament? How is it that men claiming to be the very closest humans on earth to Jesus describe God as so far away and receiving revelations as so rare and hard? They absolutely condemned themselves in this face-to-face and revealed that the average LDS soccer mum is receiving more revelations than they are if this is their normal.
2: So maybe,
8: may we ask some questions about prayer and personal revelation? Okay. So we've received many, many questions about becoming better at praying in general. Lily in Illinois said, I'm a senior in high school and I'm having trouble having good prayers, more like conversations with God. Do you have any suggestions or what do you do?
9: I'll start go, go. By, by saying, be modest in your expectations. Uh, g- God is close and he loves you and he'd love to have a conversation. But remember, uh, he is God. And, uh, and the idea that you're going to, uh, I always worry when yeah. someone speaking to him is in, in too familiar yeah. a way because it is not easy. A Heavenly Father's words, His ideas, are not exactly ours. And so the idea of having really a a conversation where you're chatting with Heavenly Father is probably a little bit of a, a a little bit of a lofty goal. My own feeling is, uh, uh, I pray as if He's there, as if He is listening. And He is listening. I believe he's always sending messages to me. I really do. Uh, But sometimes there's long silences, for me at least. And so that when she speaks, you see, of a conversation in her prayers, she's making it sound a little more casual than I think it's possible to be. This is, we're dealing with God the Father and his son Jesus Christ, and they are so far. Uh, above us in terms of their powers, that uh, uh, I, I've, in fact, I've been with people who 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 chat as if they're chatting. You know, when they when I, uh, I've heard them pray, and I thought, you, you're a little more familiar than I am uh, with that one because I I, I would think that uh, if if you can just get the feeling that he is hearing you, and then if on occasion answers come back. Often, uh, clearly in your mind. Sometimes not. Maybe by just reading the scriptures, that thing, the answer comes that way. But the conversation is is not quite like uh, yeah. he and I together. For instance, we t- we talk with each other, and and it's very personal. Yeah. Uh, Elder Holland and I have had wonderful conversations, but I don't have conversations with Heavenly Father like that. At least I don't. Yeah. I it's it's uh, it's boy it's it's. it's, it's I, I do a lot of the asking and then I wait and then I wait and and then uh, answers come, but not in in what you call a conversational mode that's. I agree I think
10: uh, you know and in busy young lives you're off to seminary and off to school and off to this and you've got an after-school job Uh, not every prayer is going to be able to be uh, so so carefully focused but some prayers should be if you want this depth and it won't be casual it won't be overly familiar Uh, sister Holland's in the audience and she she loves to talk to young people Uh, remembering an example that President David O McKay gave when he said uh, for some of his prayers, and probably not all, but for some of his prayers, he would go into a darkened room, a private room, with the curtains drawn, and he would kneel in the center of the room, not on a chair and not against a bed. Uh, He'd kneel in the center of the room, and he would kneel and say nothing. This is not at the end of the prayer. This is before the prayer started. He would say nothing for a matter of minutes until he felt like he was worthy to approach the throne of the Lord, to come before deity. And uh, he was dressed properly and, and, and approached God that way. And, and he would pray and then he would wait. Then he would wait and give the, give the Lord an answer, a, a, a way to answer and, and speak back. Now that's, that's more formal than some of our prayers will be and it's more formal than some of mine are. But uh, since those teachings have come into our lives, from time to time to time, we try to do that. And we try to do it among the general authorities of the church to make sure that some prayers are that carefully prepared to go before deity. And uh, that will that will uh, carry over. And then when we have a, a, a a slightly more hurried prayer. I don't. That's not a good word, but a, a a prayer where we don't have quite as much time to set the stage. The Lord will know the intent of our heart, and maybe the spirit of that can carry over.
9: You know, the the thing that you're, makes me realize that uh, the times that I've prayed when I was most determined uh, to be given revelation so that I could be speaking for God is when I give blessings. And I was just thinking, you know, it is true that. The Lord, it, when we give priesthood blessings, we we wear a tie yeah. and we wear a sh- white it shirt. Dress and we, and we dress yep. carefully. Uh, we use consecrated oil. Yeah. We do things to make it clear that uh, this is not just I'm going to give a blessing here um, yeah. w- as I seal it, but I need to do it in the name of God. And uh, it, uh, uh, I've had the experience of doing when it's done that way of. Uh, giving a blessing to a little girl the doctors were saying get out of the hospital room she's gonna die and and, uh, my companion I put hands on her head but we prepared carefully and uh, I I sealed the anointing and I said she'll live and the doctors were disgusted and they walked away and she did live And then the next time we went back, uh, the doctors had said, well, she'll never walk because she's got palsy from from this terrible accident. And uh, we went in again, and my companion was very wise, by the way, he he let me seal the anointing. He always, he was pretty wise. Uh, And so I did, and and again, uh, because I had prepared myself and carefully and saw it as going before the throne of God, uh, I was told she'll walk and the last, Sunday, I was in that city. That little girl walked <laughs> down the aisle, and I'm absolutely convinced. Uh, uh, if we will prepare and and uh, and really see ourselves as as coming to the throne of God, uh, then remarkable things can come. Uh, but it probably never casual. Yeah, I agree. Never casual. And you know, again, what you're saying is, I realize that. The feeling that I am going before the throne, there's a beautiful way of thinking of that, that God is real, He's in a throne, and when I, when I approach in prayer, I'm approaching a throne, uh, and uh, it's, uh, the way you do that is different than if you just say, I'm, I'd like a chat, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I want a conversation. Uh, it's, it's approaching a throne for me at least when i'm
1: when i'm doing it right
6: thank you thank you
1: jesus and the scriptures repeatedly taught that these desiccated souls and their desiccated pharisee religion are completely wrong our heavenly parents and divine brother will do whatever it takes to descend below all if necessary and love and help us where we are Their hands are always outstretched towards us. They are guides by our side, intimately concerned about every detail of our lives, not aloof monarchs on thrones who don't have time for us so don't expect to get their attention too often. And stop asking the apostles for revelations about Heavenly Mother and stuff. They are too embarrassed to ask God on his throne. I find the same win-win of divinity and intimacy in Jesus' teaching that if we feel and do anything compassionate and loving towards the least of our brothers and sisters, almighty God considers and feels that it is the same as if we have given that loving kindness to him personally. As a parent and a teacher, that makes total sense to me. I may be more developed and advanced in all kinds of measurable ways than other people or children but if they are kind and helpful to my children or students I value that not just as much as if they had done it for me but more so most parents would value kindness to their children far more highly than kindness towards themselves So my feeling as a Latter-day Saint growing up and comparing my experience to what the rest of Christianity seemed to be offering was that I was very, very lucky. I had it easy being able to value every bit of learning and service and progress as being God's plan A for our lives and worthwhile in the overall journey of progression rather than being required by my faith to keep telling myself this is just a prideful human illusion because of my rebellious, fallen, mortal human nature, and really none of it is good enough. So I must give all the glory to Jesus alone, and feeling satisfaction in my own achievements is sinful arrogance and ingratitude. And in the basic mainstream Christian model... Since all of this and the nature of God are forever to be an unfathomable mystery to my forever limited human mind, and it is not for me to reason why God decides to predestine some of his creations to salvation, but your granny who didn't get saved is going to hell, my only choice is to choose and believe and trust that it makes sense to God. But God is under no obligation to make it make sense to me. Just choose to believe anyway, and if you don't, he will burn you in hell forever. Well, ultimately, if religious faith is just about choosing a religion and choosing to believe it, rather than being convinced by objective criteria and evidence, I choose to believe Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, maybe also Shakespeare, and definitely Terry Pratchett's brilliant, funny, and very philosophical Discworld novels that work fine as a much easier read covering the same territory as Shakespeare. There is all of what I need to know about human nature and compassion and selfless sacrifice and bravery in those books. It is far cheaper than Pharisee Mormonism, There is much less unnecessary guilt about what colour my shirt is, or did I do my family history research today, or phone one of 200 people I know in case they need a friend right now. I can wear what I like, and the art is far, far better than Russell Nelson's approved list of kitsch for the generic foyer shrines. He has commanded us to put in all our chapels and remove the last traces of local diversity and creativity. You can tell everything you need to know about the health of a religion or political system by the quality of its officially approved of art. And I definitely won't be labelling people as abhorrent and threatening because of their sexuality, race or lack of scrupulosity in the religion of Harry Potter and Terry Pratchett. So if you are going to convince me to buy into the thousands of lifestyle expectations and policies of the high-demand Mormon stuff, I need overwhelming convincing evidence and persuasive reasoning. The LDS Church used to have confidence in itself to have that evidence and persuasive reasoning, in what one might call the standard model of Mormon theology that I've been describing. So to hear Latter-day Saints and LDS prophets and apostles talking about choosing to believe rings alarm bells with me and seems desperate. Along with the General Conference death march of people who get priesthood blessings and die anyway, and being told by Bednar to have the faith not to be healed, and Russell Nelson that it takes more faith to accept your loved one not being healed than it takes to heal them. In their version of Mormonism, the miraculous revelatory and healing power of spiritual gifts and priesthood power we read about in the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, and early LDS history, are gone. They have been replaced by precisely the same deference to outdated traditions, obsession with exactly performing rituals and exactly obeying hierarchical authority figures in a clergy disconnected from the lived experiences of the people they lord it over and what is meant to be the whole point of their religion that Jesus criticised the Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees for. And that we were taught all our lives till recently were the most basic and obvious identifiers of a Christianity that has lost its authority and connection to God and gone off the rails into man made apostasy. I have lost count of the people I have spoken to and listened to who have crashed out of trusting the church they once loved and, in many cases, led for decades because it no longer teaches or practices its own stuff, both in how it expects its own spiritual and priesthood powers to function, or the gospel, the big ideas, the philosophy of how to learn and progress towards God and holiness it teaches now. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints no longer does or delivers what it says on the tin, and the excuses and gaslighting of its leaders and members to explain this away and pretend everything is as it always has been from the beginning in Zion are becoming as robust and useful as damp toilet paper. When I was a child, the church assertively defined itself as being an essential, world-changing, reformation, revolution and restoration in Christianity, clearly different to the mainstream Catholic and Protestant approaches, of declaring that spectacular miracles of revelation and healing were a thing of the past and no longer reasonable or necessary to expect. Their great apostasy, according to lessons and books with titles like the great apostasy, consisted of telling their members that the days of innovative revelations bringing new knowledge and perspectives and deeper understanding of doctrines were over. The days of having a visiting angel or the voice of God or a dream dictating to prophets and apostles God's mind and will in one clear moment of revelation as happened in the scriptures were over. Christians would now get their guidance from debating and interpreting scriptures from the increasingly ancient past, and if God needed to reveal something to his church, he would do it through councils and committees of senior clergy members and scholars and lawyers, meeting for months to discuss and pray and tweak the wording of a text of a creed or proclamation they could all agree to vote to sustain after eventually reaching some kind of consensus. This would then be published to the world as the agreed doctrine of the global church or at least a faction of it and kick off another generation or centuries of conflict as they continued to disagree about what the wording of the unsurprisingly vague language in the proclamation actually meant, because proclamation making by committee never actually clarifies much. By definition, it is a compromise, publishing often ambiguous language that the people involved in voting for it still attach very different meanings to committees are not historically the best way to arrive at plain and precious truths how we rolled our eyes and laughed and mocked such obvious faithlessness and godlessness as these committees cranked out meaninglessly vague or contradictory nonsense like the nicene creed and all the other creeds of the ecumenical councils, we were regularly encouraged by our leaders, teachers and curriculum to find ludicrous, as pathetic, weak, satanic even, replacements for how real revelation from God to the world happens. But in the last few years and the last few general conferences, the LDS prophets and apostles have completely flipped that script they now preach with no apparent awareness of the irony and hypocrisy involved that god reveals his will to the general authorities of the church in exactly the same way committees of leaders and lawyers debating and praying and meeting to debate some more until they have a text they can agree on and publish to the world as the proclamation on the family the short-lived November 2015 policy of exclusion, the proclamation on the restoration and presumably the endless tinkering they are doing with the general handbook, which has introduced new commandments like taking the sacrament with your right hand and disciplining members for apostasy if they publicly criticise any of the church's hundreds of constantly changing policies, not just doctrines. And they preach this as if it is how revelations have always been given to the church, when this is demonstrably untrue. There is not a single example in any of our scriptures of God giving revelations to the prophets and apostles through months of debate in committee meetings, and no examples I am aware of in early LDS history. See all this for yourself in the Renlands face-to-face with the young adults, or Dallin Oaks's March 2020 Enzyme article following up teaching the same ideas in General Conference. These corporate manager amateurs, pretending to be prophets leading a religion they fundamentally do not understand, just lie and lie and lie, and have relentlessly evolved their practices and beliefs until they are now literally doing and teaching everything the church used to define as apostasy and Lucifer's false plan for getting us to salvation. Which begs the $100 billion question. Do they know they are corrupting the religion this egregiously, and are doing it intentionally, or are they really that stupid and don't realise what they are doing? Neither is a great reason to continue sustaining them in power. The more I learn about them and listen to what they actually say and observe what they do, the more I am inclined to conclude that they know more than enough to know that what they are doing is terribly wrong. And they have warped their morality so much in their echo chamber of absolute power and wealth and no accountability that they feel the ends of keeping people praying, paying and obeying justify any of the deceptive means they resort to. The Britvengers have now documented specific, provable, public lies from the majority of the 15 living apostles now and they just keep coming, as you can see for yourself in Nemo the Mormon's fact-checking YouTube channel. We had another from Susan Bednar's husband or of Susan, when he recently spoke on the 26th of May 2022 at the National Press Club in the context of the Washington Temple Open House. The journalist handling the questions and answers pointed out that while the LDS church is considered the fourth largest denomination in the USA and claims to be one of the fastest growing, while it adds a little to its total official membership lists each year, In reality, the people identifying as LDS falls to 80% of the previous year's total identifying as LDS. In response, Apostle Susan Bednar's husband told a flat-out, obvious lie. He claimed he had no idea what the actual data was and implied no one really knows it. I can assure you, as a ward clerk for many years, that every quarter... Every congregation everywhere in the church sends Salt Lake very specific data about the membership and active participation numbers for every demographic in the church. Temple recommend holders, children, youth, young single adults, men, women, the whole shebang. And thanks to Mormon leaks, we have watched video of the actual meetings the Quorum of Fifteen Apostles have, where they are presented with and discuss this data, and lots of granular analysis of it. Of Susan's response to being presented with empirical evidence of the decline of the LDS Church in its homeland, is to pretend ignorance and lie. Because in his mind, maintaining the illusion that all is well in a constantly growing Zion is far more important than the Temple Recommend question about being honest in all your dealings. No wonder apostles don't bother with Temple Recommend interviews. They just get one for life. And their secret second anointings in the Temple have already guaranteed their exaltation, no matter how many lies they tell. So they don't have any fear of being held accountable for lying by God. And that was just one of several blatant lies and avoidances of the actual questions he was asked in this press conference. Let's trot through them as just one example of how embedded lying is into how these apostles think and speak.
6: The church supports lower tuition costs for church educational system programs with an annual financial contribution. As you may know, the US Department of Education publishes the annual financial contributions for institutions of higher education. For the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the amount last year was more than $1 billion.
1: So over $1 billion is spent annually by the church on BYUs and education, confirming what I've said in previous episodes that around 20% of the total global tithing donations of 6 to $7 billion goes mainly to educating a tiny percentage of the church's young people at the Brigham Young Universities and Ensign College although he also described the recent initiative to provide some college courses online to the global poor in the Pathways program.
8: Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, how your membership is changing. Um, The Latter-day Saint Church has said it's one of the fastest growing religions in, in America, Um, But according to the latest reporting by the Salt Lake Tribune, the the church outside Utah has only added 8,000 new members, it's reporting, in the U.S. during the past two years. And it says Utah's growth of about 34,000 members represents the majority of the church's 42,000-member growth in America over the past two years. And for those of us who follow Pew and Gallup survey data, it's been clear that the church's replacement rate in the U.S. has been negative for over a decade. Um, Back in 2008, Pew ran a survey that said the replacement rate of the church has dropped to 80%, and that means that for every five members who leave the church behind, four new converts join the church. Can you talk about some of those findings and and how you uh, can say that the church in America is growing when we're looking at statistics like this?
6: I'd be happy to, and I'll try to be an apostle and not an academic and a statistician, (laughs) which is what I used to do. I would just highlight one feature and talk about the very complicated nature of what we're discussing. If you take a look at the church in the aggregate, it is growing, which in the climate that we find today is rather newsworthy in and of itself.
1: So, Elder Susan Bednar's husband admits here that he is an academically trained statistician but then completely ignores the statistics he has just been presented with and said that the church is growing, quote, in aggregate, close quote, which means as a whole. The only way for the church to claim that it is growing in aggregate is to include everyone who is on its membership roles, but then totally ignore the reality that overall active participation by members is plummeting, Ignore that 20% more church members in the USA every year stop identifying as LDS than join the church. Ignore that a lot of those converts go inactive immediately. And ignore the fact that a significant percentage of those members, it claims, are not even on ward lists, but are on the address unknown files because they have moved house and chosen not to let the church know where they live now, so it has entirely lost contact with them. This is the first lie. By any meaningful analysis, including the data and parameters described by the question, the church membership is not growing globally, is not growing in the USA, despite the internal migration of Mormons from the West Coast to Deseret, or from Latin America to the USA going on, that of Susan referenced to cloud the issue. It is statistically and morally inaccurate and unethical to claim members of your religion who want nothing to do with it and who no longer identify as members when asked. He then tells his second lie, that he doesn't know the data.
6: Secondly... If you take, for example, the Western area of the United States, we have had a huge out-migration of members from that part of of the country. We've also had a huge migration from Mexico and Central America. I have no idea what the real numbers are. So we have numbers, and I believe the numbers, but there's some uncertainty in the numbers.
1: Have you ever heard such utter moriankama in your life? I'm a trained professional statistician in a church with super precise membership data. Quote, I have no idea what the real numbers are. So we have numbers and I believe the numbers, but there's some uncertainty in the numbers. Close quote. That's five contradictions in a row. He literally gave every possible answer to that question, as if he's some kind of multiverse, time-travelling Doctor Strange. You couldn't make this nonsense up. But this is what the General Authorities unhesitatingly do every time they are confronted with reality. And how useless are American journalists? that she did not call him out on this word salad of a non-answer to her question about how the church can still claim to be one of the fastest-growing religions in America.
6: So I guess what I'm suggesting is, at the aggregate, I have confidence in the growth. If you want to break it down state by state, that is a rapidly moving target. (laughs) And I just am not in a position to comment because I'm not sure what's really happening.
8: Okay. Good to know. Um, where in the world is the church growing? You had mentioned Africa as one of the major uh, places where you're seeing growth. Um, what is the status of the growth, growth in the United States kind of in comparison worldwide? You, you basically said America is sure. growing not as quickly. But how can, can you account for some of this in some ways? Um, and how can you account for um, what are some of the reasons that, say, Africa is growing so much now?
6: Uh, Africa has been influenced in many parts of the continent through early Christian missionaries. When you go to uh, visit with a congregation there and you recite a verse from the Bible, everyone in the congregation without looking at a text can recite it with you. There's a very strong Christian tradition. So the message of the restoration of the primitive church strikes a resonant chord with these people. They come, they see our, our congregations, they participate and they desire to join. So there's very rapid growth.
1: So why, Elder of Susan, do you think it is that these Africans learnt all about Christianity and have a very strong Christian tradition from early Christian missionaries before ours get there, when our church is two centuries old? Why were there no missionaries establishing a very strong Mormon tradition there, with millions of converts already since the early 1800s, when David Livingstone and all the others were doing their thing. Could it be because the church flatly refused to send missionaries or let them join our church, even if they wanted to, until the 1980s because they were black?
6: In the United States, the growth is not nearly as rapid as it is in Africa. And my observation is that over the history of the church, in different parts of the world, there are different (coughs) seasons of growth. In the early days, in the 1830s, 1840s, mass migration of saints coming from Europe to the United States. We don't have as many converts in Europe today as we did then. So there's an ebb and flow and seasons in the growth all over the world.
1: Oh, so it's just kind of random that seasons of growth happen in different places at different times and there used to be loads of white Europeans joining the church in the 1800s, and it's sort of Africa's turn now? It's just how things happen, the ebb and flow.
8: Okay, Um, just following up on that, uh, membership and affiliation with religious organizations in general has been on the decline in the United States. Why do you think that is?
6: I think we live in a tumultuous world, And people are searching for answers and may not be satisfied with some of the answers that they found.
8: Okay.
1: Ain't that the truth, especially the people investigating or questioning Mormonism?
8: Um. Many church leaders, including you, have a deep business administration background, which is unusual for faith leaders uh, who tend elsewhere to be selected for scholarly distinction and they seek guidance behind the scenes from those who understand and how to run organizations uh, and to ensure long-term financial viability. What are some of the advantages of so much business acumen at the church's highest levels? Um, And at least as importantly, how is it challenging in the ways that you give that give you and your colleagues pause
6: okay i'm going to give an answer and i'm pretty positive you're going to want to have a follow-up question i have tried really hard not to let my academic training influence what i do as an apostle of the lord jesus christ
1: oh please alter off susan please start using your professional and academic training to get real about the statistics and how to run an organisation effectively. It would really help. Or choose leaders who are academically credible and have expertise in religion instead of manipulation and making money.
6: Uh, In the Book of Mormon, there's a verse that says, When they are learned, they think they are wise, and hearken not unto the counsel of God. So I do not take my academic background and experience and impose that on the church. I let the doctrine of Christ influence how I see things. So certainly there are practical advantages in knowing about how organizations run and budgeting and so forth. But I view that really as secondary. I try to view what we do and the mission we fulfill through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
8: So basically, you leave behind all of your uh, previous experience and education to
6: focus on. You can't leave it behind, but we do leave our nets. All right. Uh, The ancient apostles, they were summoned, and they left what they were doing, and they then began the work of serving the Savior. That's what we do. That's what the members of our church do. But it would not be accurate to say, well, you just leave your experience behind. Of course, we're influenced by that, but I try not to let it dominate.
1: Okay. That's lie number three. Geoffrey Holland told the same lie at the British rescue last Halloween. Of Susan knows perfectly well that the church recently admitted that Apostle Gary Stevenson has not left his nets at all. He was given permission to carry on being a nearly billionaire, working hard on the board of the iFit company he co-founded, and is working as an apostle part-time. It was all over the newspapers of Susan, and you're saying this to your nation's journalists.
8: Um, I'm going to move on to a question uh, from a member who said that they were reporting in Salt Lake City recently and that members' impression was that the church has handled public statements about the pandemic, particularly masking, rather differently from other faiths, and that the divide between conservative and progressive members with respect to COVID may be the inverse of many other traditions. Is there a story here, or is it overstating?
6: I think it's overstated. We have uh, the president of the church who was a world-renowned heart surgeon Uh, he's doing the same thing. He puts his ministry first, but he brings some very relevant experience and expertise to this. And he gave guidelines. The best answer I can give to your question, Joseph Smith in the early days of the church was asked by a legislator in Illinois in the city of Nauvoo and said, this is a very orderly city and things seem to run very well. How do you do that? Because we have a very difficult time and Joseph Smith said, we teach them correct principles and they govern themselves. They don't prescribe every jot and tittle of what you should do. Here's the principle, now you go act the way you think is most appropriate. That's what the leadership of the church has been doing. Here are the guidelines and the principles, you make your choice.
8: It sounds like that you're well-tuned to handle a pandemic.
1: This is lie number four. There is no way you can describe the church under his and his colleagues' leadership now as one that teaches its members correct principles and lets them govern themselves. Or, quote, they don't prescribe every jot and tittle of what you should do, close quote. They micromanage everything, demand exact obedience to every nuance of clothing and behaviour they prescribe and demonise anyone who compromises. Or thinks and decides independently of them, even slightly, as not faithful and trustworthy enough to fellowship with or make it to the celestial kingdom. Of Susan himself is notorious for being one of the ultimate apostolic control freaks in this regard, teaching that it is right to call off your engagement to a woman who wears two pairs of earrings after President Hinckley said it should only be one that we should judge each other's inner spirituality by our external clothing and grooming and conformity to the uniform they prescribe because actual God does and repeatedly berating congregations that dare to sit or stand before he does at the beginning and end of meetings and to present himself as the voice of tolerant reason regarding the pandemic is particularly disgusting and hypocritical, because it was he, of all the LDS church leaders, who did the most to stoke up rebellion against considerate healthcare measures like masking and social distancing, that President Nelson was supporting, with his ridiculous, paranoid online rants about how the government was persecuting religions by asking people not to congregate at church till the vaccines were rolled out. And we must never let them do this to us again! Teaching that gathering physically together is essential or the church will fall apart, and clearly implying this was more important than saving lives. This was in his address during the Religious Freedom Annual Review hosted by the Brigham Young University Law School on the 17th of June, 2020.
8: Uh, You mentioned that women lead within the church in many ways. Uh, Will there ever be a female president of the Church of Latter-day Saints? Can a woman be a prophet in the lineage of Joseph Smith?
6: Great question. We follow the pattern of the ancient church. Uh, We believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. The pattern anciently was that the apostles were men. That's the pattern. Okay.
1: If we just take the New Testament, the first witnesses of Jesus' divinity before he was even born were Mary and her cousin Elizabeth, and the first witnesses of his resurrection were women. Despite being in a very patriarchal culture women are frequently mentioned as leaders and pillars of the first Christian congregations in Paul's letters to them and one woman is specifically called an apostle in Romans 16:7. quote salute Andronicus and Junior my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Close quote. The question specifically was quote, Will there ever be a female president of the Church of Latter day Saints? Can a woman be a prophet in the lineage of Joseph Smith? Close quote. The Old Testament has several examples of women who were leaders of the people of God and regarded as inspired prophets. Moses' sister Miriam had that distinction then Deborah, who was one of the recognised judges who were respected as clearly inspired by God. Holder the prophetess is the trump card. God wasn't scraping the barrel or making do with a woman when no worthy men were available to reveal his mind and will to the whole nation. In the last flourishing of faithful devotion by Judah and its leaders before the conquest by Babylon, its most righteous king in generations, Josiah, and his righteous high priest, Hilkiah, were restoring Solomon's temple and discovered the lost scriptures with the laws of Moses on and realised they needed God's guidance regarding literally restoring their lost religion and rituals after a period of apostasy. So direct parallels to the role required of Joseph Smith as well as having the kingly and priesthood authority and keys to receive that revelation for themselves, and a gold standard male prophet in Jeremiah, they instead went to Huldah the prophetess to find out God's plans for Judah, and she spoke with the words, Thus saith the Lord, which LDS prophets have taught is only the right of a true prophet when speaking to the whole world, as God's mouthpiece. So insisting that the LDS church follows ancient patterns regarding whether women can be prophets, and that this is a role the scriptures teach only men have, is of Susan's fifth lie in this interview, and reveals his pretended or actual ignorance of basic stuff we were taught in seminary you really don't have to be a competent scriptorian to be an LDS prophet, seer and revelator these days. He then reiterated that the destitute, even those in war zones, must pay tithing and told his sixth lie when asked how transgender people who have already completed transition before joining the church would be treated. He said they would be welcomed and loved and any limitations on that are the mistakes and prejudices of people.
6: All right. Uh,
8: How would a trans person be treated if they had already completed their transition before exploring membership in the church?
6: We welcome all and strive to love them. Now, I use the word strive because we don't do that perfectly. And so people have stereotypes, they have misconceptions, they have biases and they have prejudices. We strive to love everybody.
1: The actual policy in the General Handbook contradicts this. Severe restrictions would be placed on that person's participation in the church. 38.2.8.10 Persons who identify as transgender a transgender person may be baptised and confirmed if he or she is not pursuing elective medical or surgical intervention to attempt to transition to the opposite of his or her biological sex at birth. Quote, sex reassignment, close quote. Mission presidents should counsel with the area presidency to address individual situations with sensitivity and Christ-like love. A person who has completed sex reassignment through elective medical or surgical intervention must have first presidency approval to be baptised. The mission president may request this approval if he has interviewed the person, found him or her to be otherwise worthy and can recommend baptism. The person will not be able to receive the priesthood, a temple recommend or some church callings. However, he or she can participate in the church in other ways. For more information, see 38.6.23. And the seventh and final lie came when discussing the fatwa on using the name Mormon.
6: I think that President Russell M. Nelson will be known forever as a man of remarkable courage to say we will no longer Use a nickname pejoratively attached to our church by our enemies anymore. And we're inviting other people to call us what we are called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Uh, you know, we live in a world where everybody is offended about almost everything. And we don't take offense, we just ask people to respect what to us is very sacred.
4: When the Savior clearly states what the name of his church should be, and even precedes his declaration with, Thus shall my church be called, he's serious. And if we allow nicknames to be used, or adopt, or even sponsor those nicknames ourselves, he is offended.
6: And we don't take offense. We just ask people to respect what to us is very sacred. The name of the church was revealed. We didn't have a task force and tested with focus groups. It was revealed by the head of the church, who is Jesus Christ. And we simply are asking people to respect that and call us what we are.
8: Okay.
1: okay. Mormon is not and never has been, quote, a nickname pejoratively attached to our church by our enemies. Close quote. It has been used with pride by all our prophets, from Joseph Smith to Gordon B. Hinckley and Thomas S. Monson, who both taught in General Conference that we should own and be proud of the name, and it has been used in countless official ways until Russell Nelson's decades long grudge and hissy fit throwing all of them and all of us under the bus for ignoring his talk in the early 1990s, telling us to stop it. Susan Badnar's husband is absolutely as fanatical and delusional and ready to rewrite and erase any of our older or recent history and lived experiences if they don't happen to conform to his arrogant fundamentalism. So, to recap... In 20 minutes of dialogue, Elder of Susan told seven specific lies in front of the nation's journalists. That's one lie every 2.8 minutes. Lie number one. The church membership is growing, overall, globally, and in the USA. The evidence all points to steady decline globally, and that it has been declining in the USA now for a decade especially when you only count people who even identify as Latter-day Saints, never mind actually participate. Lie number two. Of Susan has no idea what the membership data for the USA is. He has extremely specific data sent to him from every congregation in the world every three months. They won't let any of us peasants see it, but the apostles definitely do see it all. Lie number three. Apostles leave their careers and serve full-time. Apostle Gary Stevenson has not left his nets at all and is still working on the board of his iFit company and currently trying to save it from collapse after nearly selling his share in it for one billion dollars. He is very much a part-time apostle and surely extremely preoccupied with the real day job right now. Lie number four. The church teaches members correct principles and then lets them govern themselves, as demonstrated by its very cautious and late statements regarding laws and protocols to reduce fatal COVID infections which killed thousands of church members. These days the church specifically micromanages everything about your life, from how many earrings you can wear, sleeve lengths, what hand to take the sacrament with and where and who you're allowed to get information from, and Bedes himself assertively stoked fear and persecution complexes about the government using a pandemic to take away your religious freedom. Lie number five. Women cannot be apostles or prophets of God, in total contradiction to the Bible. Lie number six. Trans people who have already transitioned will be welcomed and loved in the church. In reality, they have to get First Presidency approval to be baptised, will be forbidden from receiving the priesthood or setting foot in a temple for the rest of their mortal lives, like black people used to be, and will be unable to fulfil several categories of church callings, although which ones those are is not specified in the handbook. Lie number seven. Mormon is, quote, a nickname pejoratively attached to our church by our enemies, close quote, rather than a name we have been proud to use and taught to be proud to use for 190 years. Growing up, I never imagined I would find myself in a position where I would be in public loyal opposition to the apostles and prophets of the church for something as outrageous and simple as they constantly lie and steal from the poor in public. You'd think it would be something more complicated and nuanced than that, but it really isn't. They do loads of more subtle shady stuff as well and all the systems that used to hold the church together are collapsing because of their endemic organisational and ideological incompetence, which also matters and is a big part of what I'm exploring in this podcast, along with the rest of the blogger knackle. But they are also lying and stealing in front of everyone's faces, if you prefer things really simple, and they aren't getting away with it. The members are noticing and leaving in droves and they aren't being replaced fast enough as the journalist tried to point out to Susan Bednar's husband. Once again I invite all the local leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who want the church to survive to open your eyes and see this and do something about it. I am by talking publicly about it. My wife Lynn is by publicly voting about it. Yesterday we attended our Canterbury Steak Conference and she bravely stood up in front of a host of our lifelong friends and family members. And she simply voted opposed to the first presidency and 12 apostles doing this to our church, continuing to serve in their callings. She did the same in our ward conference last year but I think this is the first time this has ever happened in a Canterbury stake conference and she intends to continue doing this along with all the other people doing the same in their stakes now until it becomes normal and inspires others to join in if they feel the need. To remember that they are not powerless and voiceless in the church if they claim and exercise their scripturally guaranteed common consent right to withdraw their sustaining support of these corrupt and failing leaders and insist they are replaced by people who don't lie and steal. It's really not that much to ask when you stand up to all the conditioning and allow yourself to think about it.
11: Brothers and sisters, it is proposed that we sustain as general authorities of the Church Russell M. Nelson as prophet, seer, and revelator, and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Dallin H. Oaks as first counselor in the First Presidency, and Henry B. Eyring as second counselor in the First Presidency. Those in favor may manifest it by the uplifted Any opposed may manifest it. I oppose. Thank you, that is not <coughs> Jokes as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and Russell Ballard as acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and as members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and Russell Ballard, <coughs> Jeffrey R. Holland, Dieter F. Hochdorf, David A. Bettner, Quentin L. Cook, D. Todd Christofferson, Neil L. Anderson, Ronald A. Westland, Gary E. Stevenson, Dale G. Redmond, Garrett W. Gong, and Ulysses Suarez. The council is in the first presidency and the 12 apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. Those in favor, manifest. Any opposed manifest? I oppose.
6: Thank you. I bet not.
1: It is perhaps additionally significant that our small stand against unrighteous dominion of the church by tyrants is happening in the Canterbury stake. Canterbury is the Mecca, the Rome, the Salt Lake City of the global Anglican Christian community. The Archbishop of Canterbury leads the Church of England and the International Anglican Churches and the huge Gothic gorgeousness of Canterbury Cathedral is where Lynn and I went on our first solo date. We visited the shrine inside to Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, murdered there in 1170 when he opposed King Henry II's attempts to reduce the independence of the church from his own royal authority. Perhaps inaccurate legend has it that Henry II exclaimed who will rid me of this turbulent priest and four of his knights responded to this plea and went straight to Canterbury to murder him while he prayed. This all backfired spectacularly on Henry II. Thomas Becket quickly became one of the most venerated martyr saints in Europe. People have flocked to Canterbury on pilgrimages for nine centuries now, and Henry II had to put on a theatrical performance of humiliating penance for this crime he has never been forgiven for. The first masterpiece of English literature, The Canterbury Tales, written by Geoffrey Chaucer two centuries later in Middle English, is all about a group of pilgrims travelling together on a pilgrimage from London to Canterbury, the holy blissful martyr for Tuseca, and the stories they told each other on the journey. Okay, here goes. Here beginneth the book of the tales of Canterbury. When that April and his tour sort the drochter of March hath passed to the rotter and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the floor, when Zephyrus egg with his sweeter breath, in spirit hath in every halt and heth. The tenderer croppies and the younger son Hath in the ram his half-course eron, The smaller fowlers macken melody, That sleppen all the nicht with open ear, So pricketh him nature in her courages, Than longen folk to goon on pilgrimages, And palmeras for to and stranger strunders to Fernie Hallways, Coth in Sondre Londes, and especially from every Shearer's Ender of Engeland to Canterbury they wender, the holy blissful martyr for to seca, that him hath holpen when that they were seca. I don't know if someone in the strengthening church members' committee proclaimed, Who will rid me of this turbulent priest? when my local leadership excommunicated me for publicly challenging the abuses of power by the Mormon aristocracy. But martyrs become more powerful than their assassins can possibly imagine in Christianity, even kings, and you'd think the stake leaders of actual Canterbury stake might have learnt from their own local history. Good luck to them if they try to do the same to Lynn. There won't be enough penance in the world to save them from the consequences of that. In the next episode, 10C, we will explore the rest of what Brad Wilcox said to the young people of the Sunderland England Stake and the global audience listening in online, and I will show you in glorious technicolour How the Pharisee Mormon religion has infiltrated the Christian one with a philosophy that is a betrayal of all the most important ideas in Christian Mormonism I was mostly raised on. Don't trust evidence and rational arguments and research, just believe and trust the few remaining faithful members to answer your questions because the Apostles have decided that it is arrogant for any of us to ask for more information and revelations like what on earth the actual deal is with Heavenly Mother. We will see how the fundamentalist control freaks intimidate their peers into submission to their version of the religion, and how they will stop at nothing, including re-filming an entire general conference talk and lying to the entire membership that it was the original talk given when a general authority dares to stand up to them and remind church members that we are not meant to be their unquestioning slaves, and that the corporate LDS church and its leaders are a means to an end, not the purpose of the religion in itself we will explore a little more of the litany of near-fatal threats to the credibility of its foundational truth claims like the First Vision, Restoration of the Priesthood and the Book of Mormon and explore how the Church and its members' religion could adapt and survive if it chooses to be transparent and honest about these things. As we learn from the wisdom of the always awesome and poetic Maori Earth Mother Gina Colvin who first introduced me to the wonderful world of thoughtful and unshackled Mormon podcasting, and in the following episodes of the Bradgate miniseries, we will watch as Brad delivered one of the bravest, wisest, and most desperately needed messages in general conference, and then fell flat on his face into a swamp of sexism, racism, and anti-intellectualism that wrecked his reputation and the fascinating and very revealing aftermath as his black colleague Ahmed Corbett was deployed to re-educate and rehabilitate him and really made everything much, much worse.